It's important that WWF fans get to see this match. This match, of course, uh, was to have happened on a number of occasions, and it did not for a number of reasons. Hopefully, we will have none of those reasons, and the fans of Montreal and the fans all over the world will get to see this extraordinary match with two of the greatest WWF superstars in history. Vince, I'm going to put you on the hot seat now. Who's going to win? I don't know. He's resilient, but how resilient is he? How much of this abuse can he take? How long can he stand it? Oh, Michael just pulled a referee right in front of the hitman. What about that? Michael's pulled referee Earl Hebner right in front of Bret Hart. And I think Hart and the referee hit head. Is that a disqualification? It might be if he could get up and call it. The referee did not screw Bret Hart. Shawn Michaels certainly did not screw Bret Hart. And again, Michaels wrecking the face. Nor did Vince McMahon screw Bret Hart. I truly believe that Bret Hart screwed Bret Hart. What is... Look at this! Oh, you're kidding me. Michaels, are you going to try to beat Bret Hart with a sharp shooter? Yes, he is! Are you kidding me? Hello, my name is Bob Bamber, and welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast, going back in the time machine to November of 1997 for Volume 1 of this month's show. Volume 2 takes the WCW, looking at World War 3, and Volume number 3 takes the ECW, looking at their latest pay-per-view, November, to remember I'm here in Volume number 1, and we've got quite the doozy of a show on the WWF front. I've been joined first by Roy McNamara. Roy, good afternoon. Hello, everybody. And a, a, a very good morning. We, we've, we've taken extra steps this morning to allocate ourselves enough time to do this show. So uh, bright and early, Eric Landstrom. Eric, how are we doing? Doing well. 9.05 a.m. on the West Coast here. Let's go. Let's do this indeed. Eric, kick us off with the news. Sure. Shawn Michaels is the new WWF champion, defeating Bret Hart in the main event of Survivor Series following a double-cross finish that seemingly every major player other than Bret was in on. The move to take the title off of Hart was done after Brett signed a three-year contract with WCW. After Vince McMahon told Brett he was no longer willing to honor the existing terms of the 20-year contract he signed in 1996. With WCW primed to announce Brett's arrival the night after Survivor Series, and Vince fearing a lame-duck champion in the final 30 days of Brett's deal, Vince made the decision that the title had to come off of Brett at the pay-per-view. But with Brett having what's called reasonable creative control written into his contract for the final 30 days, he refused to put over Sean in Canada. So Vince took the decision out of Brett's hands. The fallout from that night has been epic. After the show went off the air, Brett sparked out Vince with a punch that left him with vision issues and a black eye over a week after the show. Brett hasn't been seen on WWF television since, but it's still been an extremely hot topic, with Vince McMahon doing an interview with Jim Ross, saying that Brett should have respected the traditions of the business. Brett is set to appear on the first night show in December, but apparently injured his hand assaulting Vince, 
so don't expect him to wrestle until January at the earliest. Owen Hart and the British Bulldog haven't appeared on television since, but are both expected to return as they are on long-term deals. Jim Neidhart is working without a deal, but it says a lot that the WWF aren't worried about him moving to WCW. And speaking of talent not under contract moving to WCW, Rick Rude made the jump this month and, thanks to Raw's taping schedule, ended up appearing on Raw and Nitro on the same night on November 17th. Rude had some outstanding legal troubles with WCW, which led both ECW and the WWF to feel Rude wouldn't go to WCW. Both seemingly were blindsided by the move. DX responded by dressing up Harvey Whippleman as Rude and kicking him out of the group. Steve Austin has had more medical opinions this month. One told him he could wrestle but not use any moves that see him compress his neck, although another said permanent paralysis was still a possibility. And the Patriot may have to retire after severing another torn tricep injury. He'll be out for a while requiring surgery. And oh no, Yokozuna's career may also be done. He's seriously overweight and has an irregular heartbeat. The main, the main event antics aside, Survivor Series was largely a nothing pay-per-view, with the multi-man format exposing the promotion's lack of undercard talent. Steve Austin defeated Owen Hart for the Intercontinental title in a short match, as neither was particularly in condition to wrestle. Owen, lo- Owen losing the title, in part, was a precursor to the main event. Kane defeated Mankind in the only other non-four-on-four tag match, and Ken Shamrock was the sole survivor in probably the most significant tag match of the night, tapping out Rocky Maivia. Both have since been moved into title programs. There were wins for the Godwins and New Age Outlaws, the Truth Commission, and Team Canada, a team captained by an Englishman, and featuring only one Canadian. Now we move on to the ratings for the month. Well, first of all, to Patreon, I suppose. For Patreon, if you'd like to uh, say thank you and or get uh, access early access to our shows, at least where possible, you can uh, do so for five bucks a month at patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20 wrs links in the podcast description. And on our website, on to the ratings for the month. Nitro did hold firm in the ratings, but the bread story was good news, buzz size the divide. On November the 3rd, Nitro did a 4 to rules 2.6. On November the 10th, the night after the Virus Series, Nitro did a 4.3 to Rules 3.4. On November the 17th, Nitro did a 4.1 to Rules 3.1, which I suppose means Rick Rude did a 7.2. And on November the 24th, Nitro did a 3.9 to Rules 3.0. Now, I break no ground by saying this is going to be quite a weird show. There's lots to discuss away from television, and this is going to be a, a slightly unusual format. Um, we're not going to start with the TVs. We're going to start with the... The, the Breton Sean story antics, certainly the the stuff at least at this point regarding Bret Hart and, and everything that happened in the lead, in the lead up to the show. Uh, Rory, I've asked you to prepare to, a few things throughout the show to try and condense, you know, what is a mammoth story, and 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 we kind of, you know, we always generally have to. You know, imply, or we should probably say more often, but the sterling work this month of the, you know, Wade Keller and Dave Meltzer at the Pro Wrestling Torch from Wrestling Observer, respectively, doesn't doesn't go unnoticed. Uh, but Roy, I've asked you to kind of hopefully distill the story down into some kind of skeleton at least, and then we'll discuss it and see where we go. But I think for the moment, focusing on what happened with Brett in the days leading up to the show. Here goes. On the 22nd of September, backstage at Madison Square Garden before that night's edition of Monday Night Raw, Vince McMahon dropped a bombshell on Bret Hart. He told him that he could no longer honour the 20-year contract they had signed the previous October, 
and that he should explore other options. These options, of course, boil down to just one. Rex signing with WCW. Or just quitting and going into acting. Because <laughs> we know Bret Hart's such a stellar performer in that, in that yes, arena. Uh, I've actually seen that, that edition of Lonesome Dove. Hell, this ain't cold. Cold is when your spit freezes before it hits the ground. <laughs> now, I, think there was a, I think there was a Karate Kid sequel in there. Not sweep the leg, but work the leg, too. <laughs> uh, WCW it is. After initial disquiet, and for obvious reasons, Hart did indeed make secret discussions with Eric Bischoff over the phone shortly afterwards. And after another meeting between the two in person in Los Angeles in early October, a deal was agreed. All of these negotiations took place with Vince McMahon's blessing. The deal, officially signed by Brett on the 31st of October, is actually slightly less lucrative than the one WCW offered him last year. This contract is initially for two years, with the option of a one-year extension, for which Brett will be paid between $1.7 and $2 million per annum. He will indeed also have the opportunity to branch into further acting projects, given Time Warner's connections. And he will only have to work 150 days a year, which you will remember was a major carrot for the signings of Scott Hall and Kevin Nash in 1996. The major unanswered question here is why was Vince so keen to see a name the calibre of heart out of the door? Financially, he will only be saving himself around $3 million over the next two years anyway. One of the reasons being floated is McMahon's desire to make the WWF a public company. And as such, he would not want any further liabilities on his books, but on his books, which might make them unattractive to investors. Hart's own vocal distaste for the current nature of the product, with its heavy emphasis on swearing, sex and other adult themes, should also not be discounted here. What is for certain is that Brett's final day with the Federation would be December the 7th, the date of an in-your-house pay-per-view in Springfield, Massachusetts. But there was just one small problem. He was still the WWF champion. And that one small problem is probably, I think, where we'll start. I mean, Eric, I mean, there's, there's so many angles to, to take this from, but I, I think in, in, in kind of discussions we've all had in the lead-up to the show, the, the one thing that really stands out is that how did we get here? Because this isn't like a... You know, in theory, Vincent Mann's in control. He's the guy that has final say and everything. It's not like he got blindsided by this. It's not like Brett had it his notice. Vince was the one that instigated all of this. And as much as none of this makes any sense, that's the one that sticks out to me most of all. Well, yeah, and everybody, you know, it's so obvious to say Vince breaches the contract. Okay, how do we get here? How do we get to Montreal? And, and why didn't Vince orchestrate a solution to get the world heavyweight title off of Brett in the six weeks between, or six or eight weeks between September 22nd and, and the Survivor Series? But then you think about, well, Brett had reasonable creative control for the last 30 days of his contract, and I think a, a lawyer uh, could argue that when Vince breached the contract on September 22nd, that was that put Brett essentially on notice that that was the last 30 days of his deal in a sense so it may not have been as easy for Vince just to take the belt off of Brett at the at the in your house uh, before a Survivor Series or, or on Raw because Brett might have just put up the walls anyway but that being said um, yeah it seems like uh, Vince had some type of buyer's 
remorse or had some type of uh, situation which which has not been reported yet in terms of why he decided uh, the real reason why he decided he didn't want to honor this contract um, and and then he just the two of them just went head to head for for six weeks uh, before the show but yeah I don't think it's as easy to say that you know Vince breached on September 22nd or intended to breach on September 22nd and so uh, they had all this time to 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 get this done. Vince needed to get the belt off the bread before September 22nd, and then as he's walking back through the curtain, say, oh, by the way, I'm breaching your contract. That probably would have been a lot uglier behind the scenes, but it certainly would have, wouldn't have played out on camera like it did. Or maybe just don't put the title on him in the first place in, in August if you're having second thoughts about whether you want to keep him around. Or, um, or, or, or if you're going to, do it like you did before back in, I think it was February, when you had Brett as the transitional champion to move the belt from Sean to Sid without having... Uh, Sean do the job. If if you needed to advance the Undertaker, Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, USA versus Canada storylines in that main event of SummerSlam, you can still almost do the same exact ending. But then maybe the night after, Undertaker destroys Bret, wins the belt, and and they can go from there. And then you can work on getting the belt away from Undertaker. But you've solved this Bret Hart contract issue a month before Vince even intended to breach. There's a lot that could have been done before. It seems then, uh, because Vince McMahon is not a dumb man, he's just sometimes not a very nice man, certainly is not dumb. And so it makes you think that this was a, either a last minute or a spur of the moment or a, an impulsive decision on his part because with any with any bit of hindsight, you would have thought, get the belt off him and then tell him he's going to breach. Rory, weigh in on that. Yeah, for all of Vince's position as being some sort of creative genius, he really does panic a lot, doesn't he? 1993, he quickly rushes Hogan back and makes him the champion in a match which didn't even exist two minutes before he won the belt, WrestleMania 9. Hogan then leaves. He then gets a mid-card heel he signed six months before. who spent most of his time looking at himself in mirrors. Makes him an American hero. And then panics again by not putting the title on him, having him win by counter and looking like a total chump. WCW was sniffing around Bret Hart quite majorly uh, towards uh, a late summer, early autumn last year, as we discussed many, many times in the news, news portions of the show. And Vince, as all three of us were on that show in October last year, Vince panicked more than he'd ever panicked before and quickly tied Bret in for 20 years. And we all had a discussion about, was it a real 20-year deal? Would he be the Babe Ruth of the company? Would he go and work backstage? Yada, yada, yada. Vince clearly rushed that one through without really thinking about it. And now he was in an impossible situation. I remember your exact words, Eric, were, I'm not even sure a 20-year contract is even enforceable. Well, how right you turned out to be on that one. (laughs) And as far as the title is concerned at this particular point, they haven't learned from history here. Now, in many, many ways, Bret Hart is not Medusa. However, it was less than two years ago where she was allowed to turn up on WCW with the WWF Women's Championship, and she threw it in the trash. That was, I believe I'm right in saying, shortly after she won the title back from Bertha Fay. Well, and also critically, it was after they'd released her. 
Like Correct. she showed up. With, she showed up with the belt because she still had it, but she wasn't under contract. Like this is the. Nope, yeah, well, we'll, we'll get to that in a bit. But yeah, that that was an important distinction between the yeah. two. This idea that you know Brett was going to turn up on on Nitro with the WWF title. I mean, it was possible. Uh, we're going to get to the the mechanics in a bit of, or certainly later in the show, in terms of that that period between Survivor Series and what would have been Brett's notice period. But the the two, I don't think, are quite as similar as people make out. I will definitely get into, get into this more a bit later on. I just want to say now in one sentence, I don't think for one second Bret Hart would have showed up with the WWF title belt if Eric Bischoff had dropped him another five million dollars. But we'll talk about that more a bit later on. But from Vince's perspective, just don't even get yourself in that position. Just you're the boss. You decide when somebody jobs. Take the belt off them. And as you both rightly intimated, Brett only won the WWF title at the very beginning of August at SummerSlam. And it's only six weeks later where Vince taps him on the shoulder and says, yeah, actually, we're getting rid of you um, as soon as possible. So the issue of the title, before we talk about the other 10 million other problems, which we'll get to uh, tonight, it could have been solved very, very easily. There are a million ways you can get the title off somebody. But you've still got to actually do it, and Vince didn't, and he made a rod for his own back, as he has done so many times in his career. Yeah, I, I guess I suppose to a point he, you know, it's true. Maybe he just figured that, you know, I, I'm telling Brett he's going to lose, and he will lose. Um, you know, and more for him on that one. But I guess that was the that was the thought, and you know, that for whatever reason Vince decided that. I'm going to let Brett run into this show as as champion. Um, I think, you know, also for whatever reason, Vince just decided. I mean, this is this is Roy. This is the thing I'm I'm trying to unpack here in my own head. Is you know, Brett's contract was the most expensive one they had, but financially things have improved in the last six months or so. Apparently, it's largely down to the increase in price on their their pay per views. The buy rates haven't gone down, and they're they're earning about well, 30% more net per buy, um, which is, or gross, sorry, per buy, which is, you know, not an insignificant amount. And Bret Hart is, you know, unequivocally outside of the United States, and I include both Canada and Europe in that, their most popular act. It doesn't make sense to me that Bret Hart financially was a net loss to the WWF. Um, And Roy, this is why this story isn't, quite adding up for me, or one of the reasons why? Yes, absolutely. When I was piecing through the, the observers and the torch trying to put together that reader, that did come up a lot, and it was I think it was Dave Meltzer who really made the point, saying, well, that's not really much of a savings. There's $1.5 million more each for the next two years than, as we discussed, the remainder 70 years of his, 17 years of his contract is going to be paid considerably less anyway. So, I don't really think it was too much of a black, or should I say red mark, against their financial books. Looking at it from a business perspective, the public company suggestion that Vince has been looking for apparently for a long, long time looks like the most likely explanation for me from a business standpoint. But as I also put in the reader there, from a creative point of view, Maybe he just thought Brett was old hat, but you're hacking into somebody's contract there rather than actually changing them up, which is a rather belt and braces way to do it, in my opinion. 
It's just so strange that the the financial aspect of the of the contract got brought to the forefront from both a kayfabe and non kayfabe perspective in the weeks before and after the the Survivor Series. It's it's really strange to me that a company like the WWF, which likes to tout itself as the worldwide leader um, in in sports and entertainment, um, would would brag that they can't afford to pay. Uh, one of their performers, what in the context of American professional athlete contracts is a really, really insignificant amount of money. Um, and so I just found it very interesting that they not only use the contract information as, as leverage behind the scenes as why they would breach the deal, but as a, as a, a post hoc justification uh, for why they did it because you know, I think an average person would hear $3 million and think, oh my gosh, that's such a significant amount of money. But then you realize that Michael Jordan makes like $20 million a year on his contract, I think is what it is now, in 1997. And it's it's really not that much. So I just found it a little bit interesting that the WWF kind of doubled down on this, on this prospect of Brett wanted to take us for all we were worth uh, and we couldn't afford to pay him. I think that's just a strange tack to take on screen afterwards. But yeah, I think... I think Rory's right, and, and, and you guys hit it on the head. There's there's far more to this going on than the money aspect, and it's just kind of the red herring at the moment because it's the, it's the best uh, it's the best suggestion that's been put forth. And you'd come to the conclusion then that if it's not that they can't afford him, you then come to the conclusion that they just don't want to. Right. That's um, the only and, that's and, the only logical reach you can make with that. Yeah, that that's the you know there's a you know us who have been through a hell of a lot of reading this month, but that was the story that was creeping through at times. You know the idea that Vince signed Brett to this massive deal just over a year ago, uh, and obviously Brett had been away from TV for six months, and this was when business as a whole wasn't too bad, but they were starting to get hammered in the ratings by Nitro, and all that's particularly changed. But I think Vince brought back. Brett back and thought I'm going to pay him a lot of money, he's going to be my superstar and he's going to be the guy that made, makes the difference and he didn't not, not, not in any tangible way in any metrics that they were otherwise struggling on because otherwise they were doing okay their touring numbers weren't too bad, this wasn't like 1995 um, and their business numbers otherwise weren't too bad either um, but Vince brought him back and thought he's going to be the guy that's going to help bridge the gap. And then I just wonder if he went, oh, shit, he's just not worth anything anymore. And, yeah, that's, I think that's the thing. The Perhaps the one thing we miss with the, the, the slow burn of Brett's heel run, you know, the, the bit that was spotted was, well, that's where everyone's going. But, you know, whose suggestion? I get the feeling it was Vince's idea originally, and then Brett was the one that said, okay, I'll be a heel, but I want to protect myself in, in Canada and Europe. But if, you know, Vince McMahon is a babyface Homer booker, that's how he's always booked. It's probably how he will always book. Is That's the only way he knows. And when he turned Brett Heel, you know, one, I imagine he, you know, cost the company some revenue in the sense that even though Brett was doing the, the kind of pro-Canadian stuff, I still suspect a lot of their revenue streams are going to be from the US. And when you turn a guy heel, you inevitably impact on, say, things like T-shirt sales and things like that. Um, and also, I just wonder, 
And Erica, this feels to me like the biggest point was that Vincent Mann got to the middle of 1997 and thought, if, if I'm if I'm doing the the batting order on the wall, Bret Hart's maybe number three, number four, and the fact I'm paying him so much more than everyone else, it's just not worth my while. I suspect that had a lot to do with it, um, and and that and Vince has, as Rory pointed out. Um, Really succinctly in his in his recap and response, Vince has never been particularly nuanced when it comes to changing his mind or, or deciding to go a new direction. Um, and so, yeah, it makes a lot of sense when he's looking. At, and and let's, I think what's very important to not lose sight of in this whole thing is, and he had a great month despite everything that was going on around him. But Stone Cold Steve Austin is. Is the guy who let's not lose let's not lose sight that that he's the the if he can get healthy if he can get well or stay well depending on which doctor you ask he's the guy who is going to be number one on that that batting order and so you take Austin you take Sean you take uh, probably Rocky Maivia Ken Shamrock Hunter Hearst Helmsley looks like he's going to be getting a little bit of a push here and and you start to look at it and Vince might say well Brett's probably the third or fourth Vader even is is doing better now Vince might look at it and say you know Brett's probably my third or fourth guy top guy but I've got all these other guys behind him almost this platoon of of young currently middle middle card guys that I could really work with and and present this new um this new program Christ I didn't even mention Kane Undertaker Mankind I mean, the, the depth issues are exposed on a show like the Survivor Series when, when you have to field 10 or 20 guys in a match. Probably not up to 20, but 10 guys in a match and do that five times over. Don't but, give many uh, ideas, Eric, whatever you do. <laughs> well, watch the initial, like, 88 and 87 Survivor Series with those 10-on-10 tag matches. And we'll try to watch it. You can't because everything obstructs the hard camera. But um, you, you start to look at this, and, and all of a sudden, on an, on an average non-Survivor Series type show, the depth is not so bad. Um, and and so, yeah, I think that had a lot to do with it. It wasn't the, the, the value itself that Brett was drawing. It's, you know, is, is what I'm paying Brett worth the value, worth his value to me in 1998 and beyond? And I think Vince maybe had a very realistic uh, opinion that, you know, Brett Hart, he's going to be on the... the you know, positive side of 40, and he's going to be moving up, and I've got Sean and Stone Cold and Undertaker and Kane and all these other guys, and it's like, even though he's not making that that much money in the context of sports, he's making goddamn a lot of money, amount of money compared to the other guys on this roster, including the guys that are ahead of him in the batting order. So yeah, I think, I think Bob, I think it's absolutely right to say Vince didn't make a, a, a money call, he made a value call on Brett in that he didn't need to pay him what he had because all of a sudden he's got a bunch of younger guys who are looking pretty strong. Rory, weigh in on that? Yeah, if it was pure money call, then why didn't Vince junk Mark Henry or Mark Mero or even Ken Shamrock for that matter? You know, they are all tied into uh, pretty damn big guaranteed contracts, which must be costing Vince quite the pretty penny, and especially Mark Henry, who we haven't seen for months and months. And <laughs> Long may that continue, but even apparently so... He, yeah. Apparently he's slightly less shit than he was a year ago, is, is the Mark Henry update for us. Oh, but I don't, I don't know what that means. I so he's worked his way up to a zero or what? <laughs> you guys know how to talk these people up, don't you? Yeah, I'm at the edge of my seat now. Come on, Mark. Hurry back now, mate. Hurry back. Yes, um, I think Eric is absolutely right. Brett, a 
it's a ridiculous thing to say, somebody who was freaking WWF champion. Brett just didn't feature, perhaps, in what Vince's plans are going forward. As I said, he, he has definitely changed the entire timbre of the company this year. I mean, just watch an edition of Raw from November 1997 and try and watch one from November 1996. And even then, it's night and day. Even when you look at some of the Austin promos last year, and even if you watch, okay, maybe Austin Pillman, the Pillman's got a gun angle, was probably the main precursor. But otherwise, Raw 96 and Raw 97 are two completely different things. And I just think Brett is a lot more comfortable with Raw 1996. Or, go back a bit further even, Raw 1994, where he can have baby face matches with the 1-2-3 kid that he gets restarted after he pins the kid with the challenger's feet on the ropes. And that's not the world that Vince McMahon is creating anymore. He's moving in a lot, a huge more, a hugely more a shades of grey-based area where not all baby faces are clean-cut, um, always uh, wash between their toes, take it home to meet your mother types, and not all heels are big marauding brutes who rip up autograph books and <laughs> spit at kids. So I don't think Brett plays into where Vince is actually trying to go. And we've, we've all said that the money thing is a red herring. I do believe that's true. But I did read a piece by Vince that I think it was for uh, WWF AOL Online, in which he all but called Brett a hypocrite, saying, oh, Brett doesn't like the direction I'm going, but, oh, he's used salty language, and we had to put out uh, uh, apologies for what USA Network broadcast after what he was saying. Again, that's Vince. Yeah, I, I, I'm, not Vince sure that, I'm not sure that argument was particularly worth sight. Well, Brett, Brett didn't like the direction they're going in the sense that they're being a bit racist, not that he was saying the word shit. <laughs> it will go down in history, say, barring something miraculous in the next few months or years, that Brett Hart's last appearance, Bob, on WWF television was involved in a racial angle in which he himself didn't say that he wasn't racist in character. And then he, out of character, turns to Owen and calls the whole thing, quite rightly, stupid. So, there you go. In, Vince McMahon is 52 years old. So, this is a, a rather strange thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm beginning to think he was starting to, starting to see Brett as yesterday's man. And when you compare over the last couple of months when it's been Brett v. Sean on the mic, to say it hasn't been a fair fight would be the understatement of the year. Brett just looks lost. And Vince, as you said, all the things we talk about, Vince, he's not stupid, and he would have seen that. And even Brett's big heel turn, which I think he's done more good than bad this year. I think we've picked a lot of holes over the last few months, and rightly so. But by and large, he's just about got it right. Even then, he never seemed to be completely, completely comfortable in the role, even though the heel turn was by and large his idea. He always wanted to be the hero, but... Heroes don't cut it anymore. Hey, Bob, yeah, can I just, can I, cool, I'm sorry. Can I just defend Vince real fast about something uh, that, that Rory alluded to? It won't take but a minute. Um, you know, the WWF has it's got a, such a small roster, and, and they're really trying to take it in this new edgy direction. And Brett has, a couple of times, both in and out of character, really been uh, unbridled in his disdain for this 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 attitude, uh, this, this attitude, these racial angles, the sexual angles. And, and if I'm Vince McMahon and I'm doing everything I can to turn my fortunes around, the last thing I want is somebody in my locker room and on my television telling my 
my my roster and my fans that what they're watching they shouldn't be watching, yes. or is in, or is inappropriate, or is or they should find something else for their children to watch, which implies WCW. So if I'm Vince, I think one reason here is you know this guy's a real pain in the ass. Why would I pay him a million dollars a year to tell every everybody on earth that they shouldn't watch the WWF? So I just it's important to keep that in mind that Brett was not. You know, Brett was not rainbows and sunshines here. He probably was a big thorn in Vince's side every time one of those Calgary Sun articles would come out and, and Brett was crapping all over the Fed. Yeah, um, put well, mate. Uh, I, to me, well, Rory had his own reader prepared. I, I'm just going to steal a, a chunk of the Wrestling Observer because this was, of all of the stuff in the, in the lead up to the show, or certainly in the in the story that Dave Meltzer wrote out in unbelievable length in the following week or two. Um, I kind of thought this kind of excerpt was, was probably the most interesting. So I'll read it out. It's it's from The Observer, I think, the, the first full week after Survivor Series, but it's it's the, the chunk labelled November the 1st, as Dave Meltzer basically uh, lays out a timeline of it. Hart had until midnight to make up his mind. He called McMahon and told him about the WCW offer and said that he wasn't asking for any more money to stay, but he wanted to know what his future in the WWF would be over the next two years as an active wrestler, and that at this point he was leaning towards accepting the WCW offer. McMahon said he'd think about it and call him back in one hour with some scenarios. Before McMahon called back, Bischoff called again to try and solidify the deal. McMahon ended up calling back four hours later from his barbershop in Manhattan and told Hart that he didn't know what he was going to do with him but to trust his judgement because of their past relationship. Jumping ahead a little bit. When he was talking to McMahon, McMahon told him he could extend the deadline for giving notice. Hart asked for permission in writing, but McMahon told him he was going out to a movie that night with his wife and said that he was verbally giving permission to extend it and get written permission from the company's CFO. When Hart called to get the written notice, he wasn't giving it because he was told he couldn't get it in writing on such short notice. At 7pm, Bischoff called again and presented a deal to Hart a presented a deal that, according to Hart, would have been insane not to be taken. At that point, Hart was having really mixed emotions. He felt somewhat bad about leaving the WWF and was just hoping that Mao would lay out a good set of scenarios for a minute and convince him to stay. At 9pm, McMahon called and reserving fields once again, urging to take the WCW offer. Hart told him that his heart was in the company and it would break his heart to leave and that he appreciated everything McMahon and the company had done for him. The man told Hart that he wanted him back as a babyface and he'd be wanting to turn babyface for two to three months but just hadn't brought it up to this point. He then presented a scenario to Hart presenting it as a way to get him to stay but obviously designed to get Hart to take the WCW offer. He wanted Michaels to win the title in Montreal for Springfield. They will do a final Springfield, I think that's December's pay-per-view. They do a final four match with he, Michaels, Undertaker and Ken Shamrock that Michaels would again win. At the Royal Rumble, this is a great pitch by the way, at the Royal Rumble the two would have a ladder match which Michaels would also win. On Raw on the uh, 19th of January in Fresno, Hart would open the show and say if he couldn't beat Michaels and win the title that night that he would retire from wrestling in that match he'd regain the title then in Boston at Wrestlemania he dropped the title to Austin Hart looked at that scenario of four major losses with only one win before his midnight deadline and gave his official notice to the WWF and signed the contract with WCW had sent over with the agreement from all three parties that word wouldn't leak until the 10th of November I have to reverse dates because I'm reading some uh, American dates to protect the Survivor Series pay-per-view Hart went so far as to have his few confidants sign written 
confidentially letters and make sure where there's some negotiations and signing with WCW didn't get out until that day, which obviously did not happen. Um, Rory, that's a story of a Vince McMahon that really wasn't all that bothered about whether Vince, or whether Brett stayed or went. Two things here. Number one, Vince McMahon at a barber's. Mm, that should put a few rumours to rest. <laughs> and number two, oh, this Brett Hart thing. Yeah, what sort of a scenario is that? Yeah, Brett, I'll tell you what, lose in November, lose again in December, lose again in January, win not on a pay-per-view, lose again at WrestleMania, and God knows what he had in store for him after that, dressing up as Doink or something, perhaps. Yeah, Vince, if that was the pitch to make Brett stay, then Vince had already just washed his hands off him. That's... You could be paying him $5 million a year, and that pitch to me just makes you sound like... It's a strange thing to say. A main event jobber. And whatever you think of Bret Hart, he's worth a lot more than that. So, yeah, Vince just did not care at that point. Eric? I don't think there's anything more to be said about that ridiculous proposition. Yeah. Um, uh, and one final kind of question topic from me. I'll, I'll open it up to you at some point because I said there's loads we haven't covered and, and I've kind of been directing traffic so far. Um, Eric, isn't the, uh, it, it, the the one thing that I can't square off? If we can come to some kind of reasonable assumption that Vince just wanted rid of Brett for, for the reasons we've outlined, it makes sense to to not want Brett in the WWF. But I cannot come up with a scenario where letting Brett go to the opposition is in any way a good idea. As we discussed in Volume 2 this month, looking at WCW's options, you send Brett there, and maybe he's only got two good years left in him. That's kind of what Brett's been telling people. But whether Brett Hart's not worth to you what you're paying him, Brett Hart opens up a ton of dream matches in WCW. And that's the bit I cannot get past. Yeah... I don't know whether Vince McMahon watches WCW. Uh, I'm sure many of his goons do and keep him apprised as to what's going on over there. But it's not as if WCW has been wiping the floor with the WWF and the rating for the past year and a half or so. But it's not as if WCW creatively has done anything special or unique with any of its top-tier talent that would give anybody in the World Wrestling Federation pause to think that they would do something correct with Bret Hart. Obviously, Hall and Nash's introduction was done masterfully, and the addition of Hogan to the NWO was one of the most ingenious things in the history of pro wrestling. But after that, you kind of look at it, you look how they've handled the Giant, you look how they kind of have been reliant on Roddy Piper, you look how they've kind of botched the whole tag, tag team situation over there with the Steiners and the Outsiders. You look at this protracted build with Sting uh, that's probably gone on too long and and it might just be a scenario where I don't want to pay this guy I know WCW is going to pick him up if I don't but he's 40 years old, he's clearly been declining in the ring for a little while whether we want to admit it or not, you watch his matches in 92 93, 94 and compare him and even 95 with like Hakushi and Pierre Lafitte and you compare him to the last couple of years and Brent has lost a little bit of of his, of his get up and go and so Vince might just be taking this calculated risk uh, that he's going to go to WCW, he's going to get a lot of money, uh, he's on the wrong side of 40, and they're just not going to know what to do with him. Because Bret Hart, 
unlike Hall, who's magnanimous and, and, and you know, a good-looking guy, and Nash, who by all accounts is one of the most intelligent people in wrestling, and he's seven feet tall, and he's a former world world champion, and he's, he's much younger than Brett, as is Hall. And I, I just think Brett is not as inherently marketable and inherently likable as those guys. You have to work to establish the character of Bret Hart. He's not a great talker. He's not the flashiest of performers in the ring. But when you package him correctly and you give him the right matches and you and you let the, the fans really grow to appreciate who Bret Hart is, which is what's happened uh, in, in the WWF for the past 10 or 15 years with Bret, you expose him to a, an audience, a, a large percentage of which is not going to be as familiar with Bret Hart, and they're going to have to learn to re-like this guy. The problem is he's not the Bret Hart that got over in 1992. He's the Bret Hart trying to get himself back over in 1997 with five years of wear and tear on his body, working less dates, and with a lot more money in his pocket. So the only thing that I can reasonably reconcile with this decision is Vince McMahon gambling that WCW is going to drop the ball with Bret Hart. Roy? Yeah, I think that's right. Maybe, just maybe, Vince knows more than he's letting on. More than we think he knows. Because we don't think Vince McMahon pays any attention to anything other than the World Wrestling Federation. Maybe. maybe. He's been mentioning a lot of WCW on talent uh, on air over the last couple of months. So maybe he has his moles who've been watching WCW and giving him a few tips. And I just wonder, where does Bret Hart fit in in WCW? And I wonder if Vince is actually aware of that. Are you going to straight up have Brett come in and join the NWO? Doesn't seem the most natural fit there. On the other side, can you really see him doing the, <coughs> excuse me, the Jeff Jarrett role of leading the charge against them from the other side? That is the actual Jim Duggan role. <laughs> oh, so yeah. So we're comparing Duggan and Jarrett now, are we? God, it really well, well Duggan carries the US flag and Brett carries the Canadian flag, right? Yes, and back at Survivor Series 89, uh, Brett also carried a 2x4 when he teamed up with Jim Duggan, but the less said about that, the better. Um, where were we? Yes, so I don't see him taking the Jim Duggan role. No, I don't, Bob, I don't see that. <laughs> so what, what have you got left then? You've got Brett Hart, the wrestler, and... In 1997 going into 1998, is being a wrestler enough alone to get you over now? They already have been Malenko. Exactly. I mean, work rate-wise, WCW have got four or five absolute instant legends on there and about four or five behind them who are very, very, very good. So they've already got that sewn up anyway. I mean, Brett would far from disgrace himself in that company, but... Is that enough? Is he there and there alone going to keep viewers away from WWF or WCW? Is he a ratings draw as a pure wrestler? I'm not sure he is, especially as Eric rightly says, the Bret Hart of 1997 from a pure in-ring perspective is not the Bret of 92-93 when he could get three and a half stars out of a tackling dummy. We're not quite there yet with him, even though he's had the match of the year this year. Just thought I dropped it in there. So I think Vince realises that, yeah, Brett is 40 years old. He's not the Brett Hart he wants. He once was. He's never been an amazing promo. He's not probably not going to be at the very top of the card in WCW, or at the very least, at the very top, the very forefront of storylines. 
He's a clever cove, that Vince McMahon, isn't he? But hang on, WCW has spent the last year plus proving that you can be well over the hill in terms of your own ability and still draw, right? Like, you know, whether whether Bret Hart's peak was five years ago, two years ago, ten years ago, the fact that he can still go and the fact that he's not really, really old, um, you know... Slightly different, though. No, slightly slightly different. Hogan is over the hill in the ring and has been since 1990, in my opinion. But he found a whole new lease of life with this heel character, and he's been getting some excellent. He was, I think, Hogan's promos have gone off a cliff a bit this year, but he's still over as a bad guy. He's got that. Hall and Nash, they can talk, and one of those can still go in the ring. Brett hasn't got that quote unquote total package or extra intangible that some of the others have got. He's, he's it pains me to say this, he's just a wrestler. Eric, um, I, I've directed most of the traffic so far. We'll, we'll move on fairly quickly, but as I said there's loads of other things you can discuss. Anything you, you, you want to raise from what we haven't touched on so far? Uh, I, I think we should just... It's all going to come out eventually. I think we should move forward, and, and, and we'll get there, I think. Confront it. Rory, any, anything more? Oh, the best is yet to come. We open the month with a go-home Raw for Survivor Series. Austin is being interviewed by Vince. He can't wait to find Owen on Sunday and take back what's rightfully his. Vince reminds us Austin of his attack on Ahmed last week. Steve reminds us that everyone in the WEF has pissed him off. If you step in the ring with me, I'm going to kick your ass. Johnson then emerges and McMahon and Wisey gives him the mic. Ahmed no longer respects Austin and he threatens to kick Steve's ass tonight. Austin asks the crowd if he wants to see a match later and they respond in kind. We get the first, some first round light heavyweight tournament action. Super Loco is up against Aguilla. The latter wins a botch fest for the top rope twisting splash. Jim Ross interviews Goldust and Marlena in their house. She tells us it's great to be home with her family again. Dustin then suddenly interrupts and tells Terry he feels sick. His dad made his life a misery and ever since he's been with his wife she's treated him like a puppy dog. She doesn't even know who he is. You think I was sitting at home and playing Mr. Mom? No. I found somebody that knows me because you sure never did. Terry, I do not love you. You can take this ring in our marriage and shove it up your ass. A lengthy video package airs about Survivor Series main event detailing the entire history of the combatants. All very well done, but it doesn't atone for the fact that Brett's actually not on the show tonight. Ahmed is out for his match with Austin, but Kane has something to say about that and for a chokeslam and two tombstones. Mankind runs down and puts the claw in on Bearer, then whacks Kane with a huge piece of metal. It actually puts the monster down, but the zombie sit-up follows very quickly. Now with Austin here, he challenges anybody in the back to come out and fight him. The NOD show up, whilst the LOD appears and rut with them. Stone Cold gives Karma a stunner. Michael Cole is in the ring with DX. The latter is more concerned with planting smackers on both China and Triple H. Helsley pointlessly shells Cole down before HBK takes the mic. Michaels is about to call himself a wrestling god, but Hunter graciously tells his best friend that he isn't old enough to be god. Next week, HBK will walk naked and show Ken Shamrock with the world's most dangerous man. They ask if the Sarge if he'll make the match official, but to be sure to put the face shields with windscreen wipers on them first. Slaughter tells them that Michaels will take on Ken tonight. Mario is in action against Savio. He wins with a Lobo TKO combination. He then stops Sable talking to Cole afterwards. 
Vader versus Bulldog in a dog collar match is next. They sure are throwing a lot of gout, sure are throwing out a lot of gimmick matches on TV these days. The Mastodon touches all four corners to win, but as soon as he does, the anvil furnace on the bottom strikes. A fan then hits the ring and takes down the heels with karate kicks. Well, it worked well for Ernest Miller. A splash by Garn behind the rest back gets a win for him and the Road Dog versus Jesus and Jose. Michaels vs. Shamrock is indeed the main event. HBK takes quite a beating in this one. Kev has the ankle lock on, but Rude is win with the briefcase for the DQ. Shamrock takes a pedigree onto it as we close the show. Oh, let's touch on some TVs, just to break it up before we hit the pay view. Um, and to spend at least sorry, two or three minutes not talking about something involving the words Hart or Michaels or McMahon. Um, to the Raw on the first TV of the month, uh, Goldust and Marlena have resurfaced. And Rory, I, I no clue what they're trying with Goldust right now. You'd have heard a bit of that promo either side of the TV review. Um, and yeah, just all very, very strange. Goldust now just, you know, they've turned him again. Um, the idea as of like two months ago, obviously before, you know, Brian Pillman passed away, was they were essentially going to turn him into a Bayface and try and get sympathy on him. The Pillman thing's obviously the Pillman thing. Pillman's passed away, and so they've binned all of that. And now they're trying to get Goldust over as this... I, I, I've no idea. It's different, I'll give them that. Yeah, if you want to see some of the things he's been wearing on TV this month. Wearing, I don't know, what's it up? Oh, goodness me, he's doing his doing himself up in blackface and writing It's New or whatever on the back of his head. And on the 24th of November, he looked like he was dressed up like a giant cushion. So I really, really don't know where this is going, but uh, it's something new. I'll give them that. They, as I say, I don't think this was the original plan. They had to get themselves out of the Pillman-Marlena thing somehow. And the only other way you could really do it, with Pillman sadly not being around, was to somehow make Marlena the heel on her own. And that just wouldn't work. So, by default, really, Goldust had to do it. The way they broke them up, I liked the setup by having JR conduct a sit-down interview with them and she telling everybody how glad she was to have her life back while Dustin there just brooded in the background. But it all happened a little bit too quickly. And I know this is this is television, this is all make-believe, brother. But I still think it happened a little bit too fast for a divorce. You know, Dustin ended their, ended their marriage in two minutes, which is a bit of a stretch, I would say. And plus the fact, as we said on these uh, programs before, that Marlena's acting is sub-Disney Channel level, which didn't really help matters either. But it's something new for... Dustin Rhodes. I mean, I've been saying it for months on this show, just make him babyface Dustin Rhodes like he was so good in 93-94 WCW. They haven't done that. They've made him into God knows what. Jumping ahead of it, they're teaming him up with Luna Vachon, who's um, proved her worth in the uh, heel main squeeze stakes before. So it's got something. It's different. It's new. It's good. But it's fucking weird. I like it. Um, it's it's so different, and the the it's such a it's you know there's not just one curveball with this gold dust transformation. There's really there's really two or even three. It, he goes on November third from being this angry, embattled husband uh, who apparently has been sick of his wife for for years to a week later coming out was it a week later that he came in in a dress and hit Vader with a wrench two weeks later or you go to the Survivor Series first 
and he's acting all depressed and has the FU on his head and then and then the wrench gimmick later with the dress and the wheelchair and Luna. Turning to November third, the interview with JR, the sit down, I thought that was really good. I think the Gold Dust character has kind of never really found its footing and every time they get up to the line with really getting this controversial character established and, and really get on the precipice of uh, precipice of getting him uh, dare I say over, they, they pull back and they got the, the issue with the with the homosexuality uh, and the, with the gimmick in late ninety five, early ninety six and you know the public wasn't really ready for that yet. And then he's just kind of been floundering and he's out of shape and he's still clearly out of shape. I mean he's not a good worker right now in the ring, but at the very least they could give him a, a decent character. I thought the interview on the third really brought forth some of the these interesting ideas that he is just kind of like it, it's a different explanation for the Goldust character. He is Dustin Rhodes and he's had this mental break and it's coming to the surface. Now the Goldust character is kind of reaching Goldust V2 or V3 levels with with this stuff that he's doing on the weeks after November 3rd. I thought Marlena was good. She's not a great actress, but I think she did fine, and JR uh, steered the ship very well. I thought that November 3rd segment was pretty good. I am interested to see where this kind of like existential crisis versus adjustment disorder gimmick goes. Um, and, 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 and You, and you might be the overly wall. Well, <laughs> and putting, putting him with Vader, who's... The, you know, <laughs> Putting him with Vader and contrasting him with Vader so people think, oh, there's Vader. He's the normal one with the jockstrap on his head and the 450-pound dude doing moonsaults and screaming at the camera. He's the normal one, and Goldust is the weird one. I don't know. Sometimes wrestling just has to be stupid and fun, and sometimes we don't have to talk about contract negotiations and backstage dealings and politics. Sometimes just saddle up and try something new and see where it goes. It's not like Goldust was doing anything before. We know Dustin Rhodes has some value somewhere on the card. So let's just let's work with this and try to find it. Maybe we'll find something. And it gives Vader something to do, which we haven't been able to say in a while. Eric, you're completely wrong on all of it. On it, 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 the segment was terrible. Dustin is a bad actor. Marlena's fractionally worse. Um, we we Gold doesn't have been on television for two years. There was a little bit of interest at the start, and since probably about January 1996, no one has give a fuck. They've tried to reboot this character about five times. Still, no one cares. They tried to build sympathy on him, now they're trying to build heat on him. None of it's going to work. This isn't good, it's not clever, it's not creative. It's a shit use of Vader, as we've more than discussed before. Um, it's dreadful television. Um, they, they just need to set gold dust on fire, you know, have... Kane perform a sacrifice on him, send Dusty Road, Dustin Runnels away for three or four months, have everyone forget about him, because God knows he's forgettable. He's, well, he's not forgettable, but he's so bad he is. And then bring him back as something completely different. If you can't think of anything different, bring him back as Dustin Runnels. Like, I know it's boring, but, like, you know, he's... The, the one version of Dustin Runnels that has ever worked in any form of wrestling was Dustin Rhodes in about, for about three or four months in 1994. It's just rubbish. Like the, you know, let's say this, the, the stuff at the pay which makes no sense. Like, nobody cares. Like, there's no point in having a character like this. The idea is it's meant to be controversial. The idea is everyone is meant to care. 
either one way or another, if you've got a controversial character that no one cares about, there is no value in it. And they keep thrashing around, treading water, trying to find something. And, you know, the Pil- Pillman's death from a, you know, from a, not that it really matters in the grand scheme of things, but a put a dent in the direction they were taking gold dust in. But this is no better than what they had before. No one cares. It's just all really, really weird. And another note on the on the Raw TV before we move on, the first one of the month. Um, someone in, in the WWF, I guess in their production department, got to the Wednesday before the TV show, i.e. like 12 days out from the pay-per-view, and probably thought, should we actually try and promote this Brett and Shawn Michaels match? So for, you know, we, we discussed the, the, the Shawn and, uh, and Brett build at depth last month. But for about six or seven minutes on the Raw, on the, on the one Raw uh, of the month before the pay-per-view, uh, that Brett was not on, they aired a video package essentially chronicling their rivalry. And I'm like, well, at least someone got the memo that maybe we should try and sell some pay-per-views. And maybe we should actually build it rather than who's the racist. That well, that well-known... That well-known money-drawing entertainment storyline of which one of these popular characters is hideously racist. <laughs> Someone said, maybe we should actually try and build the show. So they put together a perfectly acceptable, albeit very stock footage type video package. There was one fresh interview, I think, with Shawn Michaels, because you saw the, the video wall behind him, which obviously only came in March. I think the Brett footage, I think, was from last year. And so I thought, maybe we should do that. And I'd like to commend that person, because I don't think it was Vincent Mann. Um, I, I suspect they, they got to the, the Raw itself and thought, crap, we're down about ten minutes here, we'll shove this in. Um, and that is where we will move into the pay-per-view. Uh, Rory, if you've got the results, uh, let's kick us off with them. Survivor Series 1997, here we go. In our first four-on-four Survivor Series elimination match, the Godwins and the New Age Outlaws went on to defeat the Headbangers and the New Blackjacks. Our second match saw the Truth Commission go over the Disciples of Apocalypse. We then had Team Canada, in name only, defeating Team USA. In our only singles match of the evening, Kane defeated Mankind. In our final Survivor Series type match, the team of Ken Shamrock, Ahmed Johnson and the LOD defeated the Nation of Domination. Stone Cold Steve Austin defeated Owen Hart to regain the WWF Intercontinental Championship. And in our main event for the WWF World Heavyweight Championship, Shawn Michaels defeated Bret Hart. Yeah. Uh, Eric, what do you think of this show? Uh, this was a largely dreadful show. Um, there was about, and I'm being very generous here, about two and a half pa- at least passable matches, maybe two passable matches. Um, and within this, there was none, none of the Survivor Series matches themselves were any good. And there was only about five minutes in total between the all of the Survivor Series matches of, of action that was somewhat entertaining and decently logical. Um, you pull the end, uh, you pull the, the final 30 seconds out of the show and that match goes to a, the planned finish. This is probably safe for that main event, which was probably the best match of the night before it was stopped. This might be one of the worst WWF shows of the year. Rory? Terrible, terrible show. Yet, I think it's a show we're going to be talking about for the next 50 years. So when we do talk about the main event, 
which generations after generations will be discussing, they will also be talking about an event in which we see the interrogator hit 10 million sidewalk slams and no other moves. And a match by a team called Team Canada with one Canadian man on it and the British Bulldog carrying a Canadian flag to the ring with him. And a million other things wrong with it as well. This was a awful professional wrestling show, yet it's probably the most important one we'll ever talk about. I don't like that trade-off, but it's the truth. I think it was an awful show, even with what happened in the main event. Like, you know, like all the intrigue surrounding the main event is basically what happens afterwards, and the very brief bit in the last 30 seconds. It's a terrible show, um, by any possible measure. I don't know that it matters. Like, you know, there, there have been... But, but this is, like, I mean, it's not Battle Ball bad, because that was boring, but this isn't that far above it. Uh, as in, the action is dreadful. None of it matters. The main event, you know, the main event, I don't think it was particularly good either. But yes, as we say, there's there's about, you know, two minutes at the end that is very, very significant. And it doesn't save the show from that point, but it does kind of render it completely irrelevant. Um, which is maybe the best, Best praise I can uh, I can give this show. We start with a video package that probably did more to build Brat and Sean than anything they've done on TV in months, or to save at least the, the build on the TV. Amazing, perhaps, given the rivalry between himself and Brett, there's a lot of Austin 316 shows in the uh, Austin 316 shirts in the crowd, and of note, perhaps, no Vincent Mann on commentary. We open up with the headbangers of Mosh and Thrasher and the new Blackjacks, Bradshaw and Wyndham versus the Goldwins, Henry Owen, Phineas I and Badass, Billy Gunn and the Road Dog. We get the Road Dog doing a promo underscored by the Goldwins music. They're pushing the Southern Confederate angle here with Gunn and one of the Goldwins. Wyndham and Phineas start off with some very basic crossovers and we're already breaking. Wyndham smashes Phineas with an open right. Crowd aren't completely cold for this. Phineas wants a tag but neither Road Dog or Billy Gunn want in. Bradshaw slides in a pin for a surprise pin on Henry, and Henry is eliminated. Wyndham floors Phineas with a clothesline. Phineas hits the clothesline and pins Wyndham. It's 3-3. Mosh goes out to Phineas' arm. Fans chant faggot at Billy Gunn. Lawler says, what's this crowd chanting? Something in French, I think. And people wonder why wrestling fans get a bad name. That was nice as Mosh goes for a bulldog headlock move in the corner. Billy catches him and then hits a running slam. Mosh is eliminated and it's 3-2 and two in favour of the heels. At least I think the heels. It's Thrasher and Phineas and the match has flattened out a little. Thrasher hits a leg drop to the standing Phineas and Phineas is eliminated. That ties us up at 2-2. Two and two. Bradshaw hits a gut-wrench powerbomb then just starts beating on Gunn. Road Dog rolls him off of the distraction. I'm pretty sure Bradshaw kicked out anyway but the ref thinks otherwise and Bradshaw is eliminated. And we're down to Thrasher against Road Dog and Billy Gunn. Well that was a weird finish. Road Dog goes for a pump handle slam. Thrasher counters it into a crossbody. Billy who tagged him just before comes off the top completely misses a leg drop in my, uh, in my notes. I've got where's my WCW instant replay. Billy pins him. Thrasher's eliminated and Road Dog and Billy Gunn are the survivors. Rory? I'm not a fan of the Survivor Series concept and never really have been for two main reasons. One, none of the matches really ever mean anything. They're a team of good guys against a team of bad guys. That worked 10 years ago when you wanted to get another pay-per-view on the schedule just so you could stick it to Crockett over Thanksgiving. Now it's completely pointless. The second reason I hate Survivor Series is some of the crap eliminations. And this had some of the worst eliminations this side of the 
Alliance versus the Mercenaries from Survivor Series 1990. I mean, we're getting pinfalls with an abdominal stretch now. Somebody called Wilbur Snyder. Uh, Wyndham jobbing to a clothesline. I take it that was a bit of a rib. As crap as those eliminations were, they're the only things I can remember from this utter shit fest, apart from the final coup de grace being, as you rightly say, Bob, Billy missing that, whatever it's supposed to I think it was supposed to be a leg drop, missing it by a, a mile that would make X-Pac and Lex Luger blush. And none of the people in the ring, Gun, Dog, or Thrasher, I think it was, had the smarts or the wherewithal to come up with anything different to try to mask that. So, yes, our first rubbish Survivor Series match in a night of them. Yay. All right. I will do my best to insert some positivity here. <laughs> there, was, there was approximately a 45-second exchange pretty earlier in the match where Bradshaw and Henry Godwin had what could only be described as a passable Haas battle. Um, that was the highlight of the match. And positive uh, compliments over. Um, this match was booked with Phineas Godwin being the worker. Um, and I think that's all you need to know about the decision-making behind both how these teams were constructed and the eliminations. Um, the end was botched. It looked terrible, but it was it was the right call because the only team in this match with any type of momentum whatsoever is Road Dog and Billy Gunn. If that, if that leg drop had connected, again, if, um, we would have at least had a, a, a plausible finish to an otherwise terrible match. The leg drop missing was the coup de grace on an otherwise really bad sign for the rest of the show. Yeah, my best praise for this match, speaking of trying to inject positivity, it wasn't the worst of the tag matches, is, the, is my bar. Uh, but yeah, it was bad. Um, yeah, like, you, you're kind of both right, like, the, the bar for eliminations here is so low, it's like, what's going on? I, uh, I don't really know. Anyway, let's move on. Up next, it's the Truth Commission, the Jackal, the Interrogator, Recon, and Sniper versus the DOA, Crush, Chain, Skull, and 8-Ball. They come out on ba- bikes, which bar, which is the bar for a babyface pop these days. A DOA do a lap of the ring, drives away right the way up, back up the ramp, then partner by the stage, only have to walk back out, to which I put, what the fuck was the point in driving out there in the first place? We start with the 8-man brawl, quickly reorganises itself with Chains and Interrogator. Interrogator is fucking massive. Like, his neck just gets... It's like a trapezoid. It just gets wider. Hits a sidewalk slam on chains, and chains is eliminated. Get used to that. The Jackal comes off at the top with a pretty crappy knee drop onto one of the Harris brothers, which is a sidewalk slam, and the Jackal is eliminated. It's 3-3 three and three and 100% so far on sidewalk slams. As I put in my notes, I'd happily see all seven guys be eliminated by sidewalk slam, because it will make the match somewhat memorable. Jackal joins King and JR on commentary. Raycon is eliminated following a shoulder tackle by one of the Harris brothers. Snipe hits a bulldog on one of the Harris brothers. I'm going to say it's Skull that's eliminated, as is JR, and it's two on two. After such a hot match, Crush and 8-Ball are calming the crowd down before the big finale. Another sidewalk slam by Interrogator, and 8-Ball is eliminated. It's Skull against Sniper and Interrogator. Crush hits a suplex slam of snorts to eliminate Sniper. Interrogates a hits, you guessed it, a sidewalk slam, eliminating Crush and winning the match for the commission. Eric. The point of this match, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, was to get the interrogator over. It was ten minutes long. You don't need ten minutes to get the interrogator over the, L- or the, 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 the DOA. Here's what you do. 
DOA, Truth Commission start. DOA eliminates everybody else in the Truth Commission. Interrogator's the last guy. And in about 45 seconds to a minute, he runs through everybody, and he's the sole survivor. That's all you need to do. It takes about four minutes. This match was 10 minutes long, and it figured, fe- featured a lot of really bad wrestling. Um, all I'm going to say is fuck this match, and thank God that The Undertaker already has a WrestleMania opponent, or else it would be The Interrogator. Oh, that's still five months. Uh, Rory? Oh, my God. Undertaker versus Interrogator. I think the phrase is, hello, negative stars on that one. I've only really got two well, things. Well, he's wrestled El Gigante before, right? Or John, uh, Gonzalez. John Gonzalez. Well, that was... Well, that was probably a mere minus five. I think we could be plumbing some even more serious steps. Luckily, that match is only ever going to exist in our imaginations, our darkest, the deepest imaginations, I sincerely hope. I've got two things to say about this match. One, <laughs> this is barely better, actually. One, this jackal guy can talk a bit. And two, please, God, Vince McMahon, don't be that impressed by the interrogator. I can see him being WWF champion in a year's in a year's time, and if we're honest, I think we all can. Please no, no. Yeah, um, <laughs> the the you know, I mean, the interrogator's probably got about one one hundredth of the ability of Kevin Nash, but the blueprint for this was three years ago at the '94 Survivor Series, right? Where yeah. where. Yeah, I mean, in that one, it's slightly different to Eric's scenario, but basically the same. They're 10 minutes of completely irrelevant action, and God, God, you know, why betide me for wishing 10 minutes of nothing in, in, with these eight? And then Nash tags in, Diesel tags in, and just cleans house. And it's like, yeah. Like, any one of those stars, you know, it's, I, I don't know. This, this, this is genuinely like a worst match of the year contender. Rory, I hope you're writing all of these down. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> I've got to go it's, back it's, and watch it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Uh, it's 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 it really is that bad. Um, you know, Interrogator probably got over, but he got over the minute he walked out there. Interrogator's whole thing is his look. That's it. Um, let's not spend another second on this match, shall we? So, the story is that Steve Blackman jumped in the ring on Monday night has been rewarded for that with a spot on this show, which is a bloody wonderful piece of logic given the uh, amount of wrestling fans that want to get in the. Uh, in- both these days. Michael Cole introduces Vader and says his team makes no sense, which Vader basically agrees with. He says their one common bond is that they don't like Canadians. Goldus, well, neither Tin Canner, I suppose. Goldus is wearing almost entirely black face paint with F and U on his cheeks. The F and U stands for Forever Unchained. Because, you know, it, it's, it, it's, the, it's the brilliant layers of detail on this Goldust character that I like so much. Anyway, up next, it's Team USA, Vader, Blackman, Goldust and Mark Marrow with Sable versus Team Canada, Jim Neidhart, the British Bulldog, Phil LaFont and Doc Furness. Team USA cards to the Patriots music. It says a lot that Vader is the best promo out of anyone in this match. Big reactions for the Canadians? Well, the, the one that's kind of dark anyway Vader apparently is team captain Mera opens up against the British Bulldog Bulldog takes Mera's USA banner and wipes his ass with it a big pop for that Bulldog levels Mera with a shoulder tackle and Canada uh, team Canada get behind one of their own in Bulldog Vader gets in the ring tags in uh, and then tags in after having got in the ring which I'm a big fan of he comes off of the second rope Bulldog hits a scoop slam and a big suplex on Vader take me back to 1993 and God knows after this show keep me there Lafon smashes Mirror with a left arm for a near fall Sable now has a white rose from well somewhere 
Blackman tags in, hits a big jumping scissor kick. Ross says that Blackman isn't a trained wrestler, so of course the first thing he does is snap Lafon's neck on the ropes while jumping onto the floor. Blackman starts cleaning house with kicks and strikes. He gets into a fight on the floor. There's a counter situation, and Blackman is eliminated by count out. A little bit generously, because he wasn't the only one out there, but I think it's like, well, you can only be counted out if you are active in the match, so I guess that is fair enough. Neidhart takes Vader off his feet a couple of times. Vader hits a standing elbow to close uh, closer Neidhart's nether regions, then a standing splash, and Neidhart is eliminated, making it three on three. Vader comes off of the top off the second rope with a splash and Phil Lafon is the fin- eliminated. Merrill comes off of the top with a moonsault. Furnace almost tried to catch him, seems to do okay, and he kicked out. He looks in rough shape and he tags out and tags in the bulldog. That looked nasty, that whole thing. Bulldog tags in for a big pop. He gets up Merrill for the power slam, which gets a big reaction, but Merrill slides out. Merrill loads some strikes on Furnace. Furnace returns the favour. Furnace counters the pin attempt. He pins Merrow and Merrow is eliminated. It's 2-2 and Goldust so far has been a complete non-factor in the match. Vader suplexes Bulldog, then wants a tag from Goldust who doesn't want to get involved. Goldust is wearing a cast. Vader hits the belly to back on Furnace. He goes back to Goldust and says he wants no part with his arm injury. Vader gets low blow by Furnace. Furnace hits Vader with a belly to belly overhead suplex which looked really good. But only for a 2 Furnace follows that with a Hurricane Rana. Vader goes over to Goldust, slaps him in the face, and then lobs him into the ring. Goldust just fucks off. He's eliminated by count out. So we're down to Vader against Furnace and Bulldog. So yeah, if, if Goldust never tagged in, then he could be eliminated by count out. Which then means the guys out on the floor with Blackman also should be ignore that. Anyway, let's, let's not let's not try and find any more logic in this. Vader runs both of Furnace and Bulldog over. Bulldog grabs the ring bell. Vader hits the Vader bomb and eliminates Furnace. Bulldog hits Vader with the ring bell. Both referees distracted. Apparently there was two of them. They both missed it. Vader is eliminated and Bulldog is the sole survivor. Eric? Compared to the last two matches, this was not the worst match of the night. Um... Again, I will try to insert some positivity into the show here. Uh, first of all, the British Bulldog. Holy shit, was he over uh, throughout the, the whole match. Uh, it's the most I've seen him cheered in a long time. Um, so even though he's not Canadian, uh, I think they made the right call of having Bulldog, Bulldog be the featured guy on this team in this spot. Probably more over than Owen, uh, pains me to say, um, with, the, with this crowd at least. Or at least maybe by that point the crowd was so burnt out from all the crappy wrestling they didn't care. But Bulldog... And early in this match, hit a stalling suplex on Vader, and it was gorgeous. Uh, just well done there. And then Vader, a, a guy, a, another guy, kind of on the wrong, on the downslope of his career, who's battled injuries. He's over 400 pounds, and he he worked this match very well. There was a spot at the end where they they got him running into the ropes, and you could tell he was legitimately just sucking wind like nobody's business. If he was back at Colorado, he'd be on the oxygen tank on the bench for a couple of plays. But he he and Bulldog made this match uh, barely passable, in my opinion. Otherwise, this was uh, completely, completely forgettable. Roy? Yeah, there was some decent stuff in this match. Uh, the exchanges that Eric has rightly mentioned. And it did start to get over Goldust heel run, but you know, still Goldust heel run, as we talked about earlier. The real problem with this match was what it was predicated on, USA v Canada. We've obviously discussed the fact that Team Canada only had one Canadian on it, and I think even he lives in Miami, I think I'm right in saying. But um, 
the problem is team, team USA versus Team Canada thing. Didn't we settle that at Canadian Stampede? It feels like the horse bolted four months ago, and yet we're still trying to squeeze the drops out of it. I now fear, knowing what we now know and who will no longer be with the company going forward, that they still might be going back to this well again going forward. And I think it's time to drop it now. The crowd, whilst Bulldog was definitely over in his own right, there's no question about that, the crowd weren't really biting on the USA v Canada thing other than some of the cheap heat tactics that were being used. So I, I think it's time to drop this now. As I said a couple of months ago, or for the flag match at the pay-per-view last month as well, in venues other than the professional wrestling prism, there are places you can go with country v country, yet you're never really going to be able to take it beyond the first basic level. Our country's better than your country. Nah, 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 nah. Which is what this feud, 95% of the time since it began in March, has been. So yes, I'm kind of tired of seeing it. It hasn't really gone to the the second stage, and it is time to drop it. But at least there was action in here which wasn't terrible, which is, you know, five stars all the way for this show so far. Yeah, the first mediocre, somewhat passable match of the night, um, which is high praise, but over a low bar, I guess. Um, Bulldog's decent, Vader's decent. As I say, I kind of got flashbacks of Bulldog and Vader from uh, WCW mid-1993, um, you know, with that with that stalling suplex and all of that. Um, there's too many non-entities in the ma- this match. That's the big problem. Blackman's a complete, you know, unknown. Goldust, I've set my piece on. Mark Merrow, speaking about another guy that was just significantly better in WCW. Um, and then you've got Furnace and Lafon, who are both very good, but just have not had the chance to show it. And they've had injury issues. You know, they were involved in a car crash, amongst other things, in the in, in this year. Um, and then Jim Neidhart, who's flat as anything as well. Um, and it's very difficult to get fans to care in a, a match where three quarters of the guys either don't know about or just don't care about. Um, and that was the that was one of the problems that this match faced. Uh, it's probably the main one. Um, but then again, as I say, that all being said, it was okay. Um, you know, Blackman got protected. Vader looked good. Got uh, Bulldog looked good. Uh, Goldust didn't wrestle, which is a big improvement on when he wrestles. Um, <laughs> you know, Furness and Lafon were were, were uh, 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 he is right. Furness and Lafon were were good. You know, a good guys to have around if nothing else. Like you could stick them in the you could stick them on the masters, Mister Wrestling and Mister Wrestling too. They'd be good guys to have in a match, um, and it was reasonably well booked. Um, it says a lot that that is praised so far on this show, but that's about as far as I can get. They have a competition winner on the phone line. Looks like they're pre-screened her this time, and she is watching the pay-per-view, so a, uh, a significant upgrade on SummerSlam. She's won the chance to invite a WWF superstar of her choice for a super supper. I would have assumed they would have given her just a list of like really like mediocre people to choose from. She said... I'm choosing Steve Austin. As we saw later on the month in television, Steve Austin did go, and, you know, I'm guessing he's injured, which kind of helps, um, but did go and have this super supper event with his competition winner, for what it's worth. I, I just wanted I just wanted the announcers to say, you can pick from any WWF superstar you like, who do you want to have a super supper with, and she should have gone Savio Vega. That would have been brilliant, right? It would have, well, it would have taken her off TV for a week as well, which would have helped. Um, but, yeah. 
that's what it's worth. Anyway, mankind describes facing Cain as like facing a brick wall, and while most people will climb it or go around it, he's going to take a run up and jump into it. And next up, it's Mankind versus Kane with Paul Bearer. We start on the outside with Mankind going on the offence. Of course, the match starts with Mankind being thrown headfirst into the steel ring steps. And the red, mood, the red mood lighting that Kane basically has all the time was in full effect throughout the entire match. Kane gets in the ring and sets off his pyro. Mankind sends them both to the floor, but Kane lands on his feet and hits him with a clothesline. Kane hits Mankind with the ring steps and the lighting sorts of returns. Mankind runs into a big boot, they brawl onto the floor, and Mankind gets slammed into the ring steps again. Mankind gets a boot up and then drops Kane face first onto the ring steps, the crowd rally for that. A pile driver by Mankind, he puts the mandible claw in on Bear, but this is of course a set for Kane sitting up in the ring, which he does. Kane gets up, goes to the apron and does a one-handed choke slam, and Mankind goes flying through the announcer's table. He does, but of course he gets straight back up. They brawl back around the aisle way and Mankind DDTs Kane on the floor. Kane does a standing uh, standing lead to get onto, sort of just a, for a standing position to get on the apron. He takes Mankind off of it and lobs him onto the floor. I do not envy Mick Foley's body. Mankind crawls back into the ring to Kane. He gets on his feet. Kane hits a tombstone that looks absolutely horrendous on his knees. Well, I suppose they all do to a point. Tombstone pins him and picks up the victory. Rory. This was the one match on the show I actually went back on the tape and, and reviewed. I did so just before we went up on air. Uh, the main reason was because of the red lighting. I could barely see what was going on first time around. And I think most of the people in the arena who didn't have the chance to rewatch it might well, have, might well have been in the same situation. I uh, really only more the shame they didn't red light about two-thirds of this card. <laughs> they definitely picked the wrong one, didn't they? It was all a bit bit schlocky cheesy for me. Oh, Kane can do these magical things and he can ask the lighting guy to just put a red tint on the lights. Now, that was pushing it into, to quote Wayland Smithers, the realms of cartoon supervillainy. So I didn't like that. I hope they drop that for matches going forward. Otherwise, I thought this was really quite good. If you want somebody to be got over as an absolute monster, put them in there with someone who will bump around like an absolute madman. And when you've got Mick Foley on your books... You need not look no further. He took a fucking beating in this match. He had stairs thrown at him. He was thrown, not chokeslam, which is a protected move. He was thrown neck first backwards into the table. He was pelted. He was punched. He took everything. The match was just about the right length at nine minutes. It keeps... I still don't know quite where they're going with Foley. As we know, he went home for the next day, but we'll get to that when we get there. But he came across as somebody who will never back down. It's sort of a 1997 version of a classic babyface in a way. And yet Kane just looked like an absolute devil beast. Uh, one thing I really did appreciate right at the very end of this match was um, just, just as he was about to hit the tombstone, he still hasn't really got the tombstone right, but never mind, was that he set up for it in the way that Undertaker would during his first years with the company i.e. he grabbed his opponent's hair and just yanked them up, pulled them into a tombstone position, rather than any form of more elaborate setup. So yes, that was a really subtle thing that I really appreciated. And this was probably the match I enjoyed the most in the entire night. Eric? Yeah, this was, this was probably the first entertaining, truly entertaining thing of the night, save for a 10-second Bulldog Vader suplex in a decent little in exchange between Bradshaw and Henry Godwin that ended up being irrelevant. Um, yeah, th- 
I really liked that they didn't have Kane just run through Mankind, but instead Kane did that and then took all of Mankind's offense and then came out relatively unscathed. Now, let's not forget Mankind beat The Undertaker twice and not not clean, but not, not with a lot of chicanery before The Undertaker ultimately won again at Survivor Series last year. So it's a good first – it's a – the most logical first true opponent for Kane, and it makes Kane look stronger than The Undertaker, frankly, because Kane went out there and beat this guy in nine minutes uh, where The Undertaker had to do it in three tries. So I like this, and I think both these guys are really good. And, you know, where Foley is going, Mankind, Dude Love shows up at the later in the month, where he's going, it just keeps this Mankind character looking strong, and he's definitely a face at this point, and he's taking those bumps, and he's got this never-say-die attitude. This wasn't a great match per se. I don't like a lot of the the bumps that Foley takes and the a lot of the needless stuff that he does to his body for a match, which is ultimately a transitional match for Kane. But it was it's super effective in, in trying to keep the crowd invested in this mankind dude love Mick Foley character where until they find a new direction for him. I also think that Paul Bear just continues to be the best manager character in the game. He, he's he's got to carry this Kane character because this. Kane can't talk, and he, he doesn't really emote, although he emotes very well with his body, but he can't emote with his words and his face. And so you have Paul Bearer here, this evil genius, this evil mastermind, and he uh, continues for yet another year to be the best, most entertaining manager in North American professional wrestling. And he's continuing to carry essentially the Undertaker storyline, not even being directly uh, associated with the Undertaker for for since SummerSlam of 96, but Bear is still the, the puppet master here for everything that's going on uh, for The Undertaker now with Kane. Really can't be understated how important he is, how important of a cog he is in this whole uh, prospect. And his, his selling of the Mandible Claw was hilarious too. So anyway, yeah, this was, this, was, this was good and it was effective. And I think of all the things on the card, it came off as the most, uh, it came off the best. It was the most coherent and an entertaining thing of the night, in my opinion. Yeah, coherent was exactly the word I was going to use. Um, it wasn't necessarily great. It certainly wasn't awful. Um, there was a lot of, you know, questionable moments in terms of selling issues, but then again, these are the kind of characters that you can kind of forgive that of. Um, you know, Mick Foley, as I kind of said before, if he is going to kill himself, I'd rather him do it in position that matters. And, and Kane's first pay-per-view match was certainly one of those. Um, and I kind of think both guys got to the end of the match and were more over than they were when we started. Um, and that is always a good kind of number one point in terms of was a match any good or not. Um, you know, it didn't always make sense. I, I think the, the mood lighting took away more than it added, but that's to say it added quite a bit, it just probably took away a little bit more in terms of it, it turned the match into theatre more than an actual match where bits mattered, but that's fine for this kind of character. Yes, there are issues with no selling, you know, I, I don't, you know, they they went from having the, the kind of announce table spot being this big shock and all moment and, and mankind was you know that it wasn't the first guy but when he uh, when he kind of went head first through the table about a year and a bit ago that was one of the best spots they've done they are starting to overdo that now a bit um, and it doesn't help when mankind goes straight through it and gets straight back up that's not a big help either um, but for Kane's first pay-per-view match there were far more positives than there were negatives and for a guy that won 
you know, is they competent wrestlers we've seen before, as, as Isaac Yankum and as uh, as Diesel, we should say. Um, you know, is no guarantee of anything. And two, he's trying to settle into a new character. In some respects, this match was a big win. It wasn't ultimately that entertaining, but right now, like, if, if it's going to be Kane and Undertaker at WrestleMania, the important thing for Kane the next four months is isn't to get the his in ring character over, it's to find an in-ring style that suits him, and it's to get the character over. Um, and this helped both of those things, I think. Um, so yes, not not a brilliantly entertaining match by any stretch, um, but certainly, as I say, I think Eric's right, coherence one word I would use, and also, um, yeah, I, I think uh, quite productive, if nothing else. Michael Cole is backstage with Vincent Mann and Commissioner Slaughter. Vince says the match is important, and it's important that the fans get to see it. He says it hasn't happened before for a number of reasons, well, recently anyway, and it's important those reasons don't get involved here. Cole asks Vince who's going to win. Vince pauses briefly and then says, I don't know. <laughs> Which, you know, for, for once, may not have been entirely false. Um, but there we are. We move on next to the Nation of Domination. Farouk, Rocky Maivia, Karma and Dino Brown versus Ken Sharrock, Armour Johnson and the Legion of Doom, Hawk and Animal. The fans are already chanting Rocky sucks, so of course he tags out. I know it's Calgary, but interesting to know that Shamrock and the LOD were on the heel side at July's pay-per-view and yet are being cheered here. Just, at least. Dino hits a power drive, which Hawk no sells. Rocky hits a Nirage slam and Hawk is eliminated. Farouk tries to stop um, Ahmed, Ahmed hits the pole with a plunge and Farouk is eliminated. Dino goes to the top and hits a lovely frog splash on the top of Ahmed. Ahmed hits a lovely sit-out front suplex. He then takes Rocky down. Rocky takes Ahmed down. Farouk, who's still there, holds Ahmed's foot from the outside and somehow neither referee sees this and Ahmed is eliminated. Ahmed chases Farouk to the back and it's two on three. Shamrock and Ahmed against the rest of the nation. Shamrock hits a big drop kick on Rocky but ends up in the heel corner. A double clothesline takes Animal and Karma down. Animal hits a shoulder block and some feedback plays for the arena speakers. The match is completely dead at this point. Off the distraction, Animal eliminates Karma by roll up. It's two against two. Rocky hits Shamrock in the nuts. Big reaction for that. The fans chant Rocky's gay. Animal gets going, out comes Billy Gunn and Road Dog. Road Dog is wearing the LOD shoulder pads. In a melee, Animal pushes the rest to the floor. Road Dog throws powder in his eyes and Animal gets counted out. We're left with Shamrock against Rocky and D-Lo. Shamrock runs, runs the over with a double clothesline, hits a belly-to-belly on D-Lo, then eliminates him with an ankle lock. Rocky smashes Sharrock with a chair, neither do the rest hear it. Sharrock kicks out after one, that was always going to be coming, given what basically was a complete copy of the finish of Bulldog and Vader, so this is always going to be the one where there was a kick out. Rocky hits a float over DDT of sorts, and Sharrock kicks out again. I'm not sure the best way to get Sharrock over is, uh, is an unbeatable monster is to have him kick out of loads of moves. Rocky hits a running elbow drop, Sharrock hits a belly-to-belly suplex, and both men go down. Sharrock hits a hurricane runner, he turns an armbar into an ankle lock, and Rocky taps out. Sharrock is the sole survivor, and he's bloody happy about it. Eric? Uh, dare I say that in terms of the way the match was structured and the eliminations as they uh, as they happened, this match was pretty well booked. Um, the match was about 20 minutes long, and for the last 10 minutes, they had cut out all the dead weight. Ahmed was gone, Farouk was gone, Kama was gone, Hawk was gone, and you and you were left with Ken, Rocky, Dilo, an animal who's an under, underrated worker, especially compared to Hawk. 
and you let those guys carry the thing for 10 minutes, and you actually got what was kind of a decent little 10-minute mini match once the rest of the fat was cut out. And, and, and so then you end up with Ken Shamrock winning the thing, tapping Rocky clean in the middle, and this was Ken's best performance since his Vader match, I think. And, and it goes without saying that both Ken and Rocky are both being built up uh, to fill this void that's being left by, by Bret Hart. Um, and I, I think you can kind of utilize these two together and independently, and I'd like to see these guys work, work some more. Ken's going into the main event program, so they may not cross paths again. But certainly, if you want to continue to build Rocky as a credible wrestler and Ken as a killer, you know, having Ken go over Rocky after a decent exchange um, with the necessary heel tactics uh, really works for me. As far as the rest of the guys, it's we've been doing this Farouk Ahmed thing for so long. You know, does anybody give a shit anymore? It's time to move on. And lastly, I think D'Lo Brown, who we don't know a lot about and hasn't really been featured, he's he's the workhorse of this nation of domination. He's kind of their Tully Blanchard, if you want to draw analogies to four man, five man stables. Um, so yeah, I think with 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 what was with the talent you had in this match, I think they booked it about as well as you could. Roy? Yeah, what a difference a year makes. And 12 months ago, it was all about Ahmed against Farouk, wasn't it? And here we are in the Survivor Series match 12 months later. Ahmed pins Farouk cleanly, 100% cleanly with the Pearl River plunge. Nobody cares. Ahmed gets eliminated by nefarious means two minutes later, and still nobody cares. So this was definitely a way of getting them off the books for good. They blew their chance with them at the Royal Rumble and nobody is bothered and quite rightly so. It's all about the likes of Rocky and Shamrock now and I thought their little exchange at the end was good. And Bob, I'm glad you brought it up there in your play-by-play. And I groaned when I saw Rocky grab the chair. I thought oh come on, they're not going to do the same finish from the previous match again, are they? I mean, who are the road agents these days? <laughs> it's almost as if they were tied up with something else at that point. Hint, hint. But they didn't quite go that way and they had a decent little three or four minute match the two people who we've clearly got plans for, they're both in title pictures next month, which is good. And it will be interesting to see how they get on in those. I have got an issue with Shamrock, though. It's that he's, he's getting over, which is good. But he's getting over as a fairly good pro wrestler. When his gimmick should be a legitimate fighter, who, if you look at him a bit funny, will outright kill you. And other than his match with Vader, where he... Let's face it, he did very nearly did outright kill Vader with some of the stiffest strikes you'll ever see. He hasn't really got that anymore. And I know that Shamrock did do some work pro wrestling when he first started out back in the NAWA in 1990, but I think as just a guy, even if it is over now, he's not going to be over forever. Must be somebody who can absolutely kick your ass, then they could get a lot of longevity out of him. So they need to be careful. But, uh, yeah, the, the two guys who they're putting their stock in with a mid-card, maybe moving up to the upper mid-card, uh, did their stuff here, so I can't complain. Even though most of the match was pretty, pretty blah, but considering who was in it, that's no surprise. Yeah, the, the, the thought with Shamrock was, was seven, eight months ago. Like I, I think the, the, the shit for, for building Shamrock a la you know, Bill Goldberg or a la any kind of killer um, has kind of sailed. And I think there's also the fact that one thing that is quite difficult, and one thing that WCW might find with Goldberg if they just keep, you know, if they just keep having him plow through guys, at some point, 
at some point he has to fire his water level. Whether that it, whether it's above guards, we don't know. WCW have got the option, or you know, have, have at least the issue where they've got to they're going to have a ceiling for him. With the WWF, there's much more space for, for Shamrock to move into. Um, but equally, it's clear we spoke about the batting order earlier. It's clear that Shamrock's batting at four or five or six. And the problem is, as we've seen with Vader before, that it's all well and good saying this guy would be effective as a killer. But the only real way to book a killer is like out of the old territory days i.e. you bring him in, he runs through people for six months, he loses the one big match, and then he buggers off. Or two, you can't really, or you put him on top. That's the only two ways of doing it. You either right. you either, you either have him win loads yep. of matches, and then lose one, and then he goes away, or he wrestles as the number one guy. And both of them would be quite productive options. You could you could have built Shamrock up for you know, six, 12 months, and then have him lose. The problem with that, obviously, is that then he's really over, and you have to take him off the television. And so... When you put that in mind, even though you probably make less money, it's probably slightly easier if you do just book Shamrock as this normal wrestler with this spark. I don't like it. I'd have done it differently, but I kind of understand it. If Shamrock's going to be number three, number four, behind Michaels, behind Undertaker, behind perhaps one or two others, then... Uh, this might be the best way around it. I don't know how effective it is. I thought this match was very good. Uh, not well, not very good, but I thought this from, from how they laid it out. I think Eric was right. They got rid of the guys they needed to get rid of, and then they left themselves with the two guys to showcase. And from that perspective, from the actual layout of the match, it was very well executed. And we got the the back and forth with Shamrock and Rocky. Um, you know, I go back to what I said before. I, I think more from a more from a kind of positional standpoint than actual kind of what happened in the ring, I think they both left the match more over because it was a signpost to the audience that these two guys were going to be focusing on. Something that was very much true in the in the days and weeks after the show too. The action between them was good. The action between the other guys was not so much. Um, but it was fine. Uh, Shamrock, as, Shamrock is a guy, as I say, maybe it's this really bad trade-off, but I kind of understand where they're going, even if I wouldn't necessarily go that way. Austin's shirts are everywhere, given that he's against Owen Hart, the reaction he gets as he comes out is surprisingly positive. Owen comes out flanked by the rest of Team Canada. And up next, it's Steve Austin versus Owen Hart with the British Bulldog, Jim Neidhart, Doug Furness and Phil Lafon for the WWF Intercontinental title. Worth saying, both of these guys went into this match a bit worse for wear, and you'll kind of pick up the uh, the result of that as this match doesn't go very long, or not very much happens either. Austin tears up Owen's shirt, Neidhart is a sacrificial, sacrificial lamb as he gets stunned, but it opens the door for Owen to get in some offence. Owen shakes the pile trial, which gets the crowd whipped up. Owen buggers off, Austin runs after him and the rest of the candidate are scarpered. Owen chokes Austin with a cable, he gets into an argument with the referee and says, disqualify me then. He rings the bell himself, but the match continues. After an awkward sequence, Austin hits the stunner and wins the Intercontinental title. Out comes uh, out come Furnace and Fawn and they eat stunners too. A big pop for the win in front of a largely split crowd. Rory? Yeah, with Austin still not being medically cleared yet, for goodness sake, and Owen just coming back from a concussion, this match was never going to be anything. So just thinking about it now, I wouldn't even have had it four minutes. I'd have had it four seconds. I don't think anybody really loses anything in this match. If as soon as the bell rings, Austin hits a stunner, one, two, three, there you go. I don't think the fans would have felt particularly short change. I don't think they would have shat on it. I still think they would have largely backed Austin the way they did. Every, most importantly of all, the health of Steve Austin is protected. 
Owen gets uh, a few more minutes to actually recover if he's suffering from a concussion, which is not something you should take lightly anyway. And you get the same result, which is putting the belt back where it was three months ago. As it was, they meandered around for four minutes in which nothing happened other than that admittedly fairly amusing choke disqualify me then spot. Yes, uh, normal service has been resumed, but we didn't need a bad match to get there for many reasons. Eric? Oh, I don't know. The match was only four minutes long between two guys who otherwise know what they're doing. There's only so much damage that they could have done. I think the match was just about right. There was there was shenanigans, of course, uh, because you have to work around two guys who shouldn't be working at all. Um, let's just take this moment to say bless Owen Hart. He's a treasure. Every heel should try to get themselves disqualified to keep the title. It's a dumb rule anyway. I don't know why every heel that doesn't come into the match and immediately get themselves disqualified and keep the belt. Ringing the bell himself was just another was was an eerie foreshadowing uh, to the main event. Actually, now that I think back on it, um, but yeah, this 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 was not a match. This was a segment to get um, a storyline pushed forward, probably necessarily to get the belt off of Owen Hart for various reasons, just in case uh, you have your Intercontinental Champion showing up on WCW television. If we're going to carry forward the logic that Brett could take the world belt and take it to WCW. I know the contract situations are different, but at least there's multiple reasons here why you would want Owen to, to drop the belt 10 minutes before you're about to screw Brett. Um, but anyway, yeah, this was fine. And and hopefully Austin can get well, and hopefully Owen can get well, and these guys can have a match more indicative of their collective skill set like we saw at SummerSlam before the, the unfortunate ending. So I have no problems with this. Anytime you get Austin on screen, it's probably the most entertaining thing that the Fed is doing right now. And um, other than changing Owen's music, which was dumb, because the King of Hearts music was one of the best themes in the Fed, um, I have no issues with this whatsoever. Yeah, match rule than angle. I think I think you're, you're both kind of right on that. Uh, very little not actually happened for, for a wrestling standpoint. But I, you know, as I say, as you kind of say, like I think the the, the idea that they could have just done like a you know a thirty second you know angle type thing yeah I think they probably could have just a little bit of action stun her out of nowhere bang three count um, I think the most interesting thing and I think it was a precursor to uh, to what we're going to cover in a minute um, was basically just the, the, the reaction of the crowd um, there were a lot of Steve Austin fans um, in the place and as I say Calgary is not Montreal um, you know, they are different places. The storyline isn't where it was at that point, which is also of note. Um, but the fact that Steve Austin's been feuding with the guy that's all pro-Canada, and they get there, and, you know, the crowd was pro... Eric Fedder said the crowd was split. I think that was about right. Oh, I think split's being generous. Yeah, Owen got the Owen got the mandatory pop, um, and, and I... Hate to say this because he's my my guy, but I I think the the chance for Austin were even bigger than than the ones for Owen. And as I said earlier, I think Bulldog's ovation was even bigger than Owen's. Yeah, um, as I say, there's, there's some weird things going on that we'll discuss in a second. But yeah, a uh, a, a, a nice angle, uh, a good title change. You know, Austin's less injured than Owen. Okay. Um, but yeah, all, all well and fine, and um, we'll we'll, uh, we'll now move on to the main event. And so almost to the main event. I'll just start with a little bit of uh, story. The, the discussion we did kind of in the uh, 
in, in the early part of the show, it's kind of more the, the broad kind of the weeks, 10 days leading up to the show, just to kind of magnify a little bit the, the last few days of the show. In the, in the newsletters on the Wednesday, as we said, Bret Hart basically was, was keen to, obviously, not to uh, have the story break and, you know, was under the impression he, he, he had all, uh, all possible lines kind of, you know, towed up. Um, but the story did broke. Uh, it did break. It did end up in the wrestling observer and the pro wrestling torch on you know the Tuesday, Wednesday, whenever those are released on the on the week of the show. And you know it obviously it didn't get ran instantly, but enough people have access to the internet right now where kind of by the Friday that was a uh, kind of increased interest. It helped ticket sales. It probably almost definitely helped the buy rate. Um, and yeah, so on the basically as it stood. The agreement, as I as I understood it, was Vince was telling Brett we're just going to have a you know a fuck finish. Long story short. Meanwhile, there was a meeting in a hotel on the Saturday, the day before the show, not including Brett, but including most of the other major players. Um, and basically, they came up with what they came up with the the idea that obviously the bit Brett was in on uh, in terms of a segment in the match was going to be a ref bump, and they basically said, yeah, when it happens. Um, Michaels is going to put Brett in a sharpshooter. Earl Hebner, you're going to get up very, very quickly, and you're going to call for the bell. Um, and so we will see how all this goes down. It's time for the main event. It's Shawn Michaels versus Brett Hart for the WWF title. We have a video of Sean Hunter, China, Rude walking through the back. He emerges alone, a fair number of boos, but nothing very vociferous so far. Sean gets a beer, I presume it's a beer, lobbed all over him by a fan. He takes a Canadian flag, wipes it on his arse and on his nose. Not very hygienic, I've got in my notes. Brett is flanked by his guys two backstage, but he comes out alone, a big pot for his entrance. There's a big China is a man sign in the crowd on the hard camera side. I don't know whether that's important or not, but there we are. We start off with Michaels on offense, but Brett levels in with some strikes. Everyone is standing for this, at least they are opposite the hard camera. Michaels gets sent to the floor. Brett bounces his head off the ring post, the saying the match is yet to start. Brett throws Michaels into the crowd. They get ambushed by the fans. I think one or two even try to get a shot in on Sean. We return to ringside. Vince McMahon and Pat Patterson have rocked up as of about half a dozen rest and Sergeant Slaughter. The crowd, for what it's worth at this point, at least are dead silent. We're in the crowd again. Brett then backdrops Michaels back into the ringside area. Vince, who stood nearby, shouts, Oh, look out! As if he's on commentary, which I thought was a really nice touch. Uh, we're on the aisleway, and the pile driver by Michaels is counted into a backdrop. They're brawling, people absolutely everywhere. Brett throws Michaels over a barricade as we head towards one of the exits. Brett punches a referee, and we get via the entrance ramp, and Vince is stood right next to them, which is quite bizarre. We finally get in the ring. Brett strangles Sean with what I think is the Quebec flag. The bell rings and we're underway. Michaels gets on offense. There's one bloke in the crowd who's just chanting, Sean is gay, over and over again. On the ring steps, Michaels drops Brett with a face-first suplex. Michaels gets the Canadian flag, snaps the pole over his knee and hits Brett with it. Back in the ring, Sean tackles Brett to the ground and starts wrenching on a face lock. Brett rallies out by throwing him off and Brett starts working the leg. Sean hits a crossbody off of the top. Brett rolls through it for a near fall. Brett does a turnbuckle figure four. This one looks really, really good as Sean gets properly upright to sell it. Brett pulls Michaels mid-ring and puts in a figure four. Michaels rises in agony. He eventually rolls it over and Brett grabs the ropes. 
We get a rush next week by Brett for a two. Brett goes for a suplex, hits another, back to their feet, and then a backbreaker. Brett heads to the top. Michaels pulls Hebner into arm's way, and all three go down. Michaels gets to his feet first, steps into a sharpshooter. Earl Hebner gets up, looks at Brett for a few seconds, and then calls for the bell. There's some shock as Brett gets up pretty quickly and works out what's gone on. He spits in Vince's face. Michaels looks pretty pissed, but then again, when does he not? He grabs the title and buggers off, and that's how we go off the air. Uh, Rory, we'll start with the match. What do you think? Oh, yeah, there was a match before the last uh, 20 seconds, wasn't there? Um, God, uh, what to say about this? It was a quite an enjoyable fight, actually. It never really developed into a match, even forgetting about when the bell actually rung after 10 minutes of brawling, it never really developed into a match until the last 3 or 4 minutes and when we got there it was pretty good this was these two it almost seems ludicrous to say this now but I am going to for the sake of discussion, in pure kayfabe two guys who hate each other just fighting one another to try to win a belt and that's pretty much all it was until we hit the moves with about three or four minutes to go. And it was great. It was great seeing them brawling out in the uh, brawling out by the entranceway and punching referees and just letting all their intensity go up to the max. It was great fun to watch. I mean, it, it's it was certainly far more exciting than you know Brett having Shawn Michaels in a headlock for fifteen minutes as we were treated to more often, more often than not uh, during their hour match eighteen months ago, and. They cooperated with each other. There was no, what I could see, there was no real potato harvest going on, so to speak. They put together something that was a very exciting watch. Some of the sequences in the actual match were great. As you say, Bob, I think the ring post figure of four has never, ever looked better. Sean sold that one like an absolute champion. It looked so painful, perhaps, but perhaps the first ever time. Like actually, I felt it while I was watching it. But the sad thing is, all of that is moot because of what happened in the last 15 seconds. Eric? I think this was, I agree with Rory, I think this was a, a, a pretty expertly booked match uh, and, until the very end. I have to kind of segregate that from, from the rest of our analysis, I think, of the match itself. Um, you know, these guys should beat the shit out of each other after the last 18 months. You know, too many matches, we, we have these vitriolic feuds and they're personal and involves families and then the bell rings and they lock up, headlock, ropes, back body drops, square off. Like, that's not what two people who actually hate each other do. Um, and so the fact I've that... Never loved that I've never loved that logic, whole because shouldn't that be true for all wrestling matches? Well, but it, it, it's especially magnified in this one where you have two guys who have been... Uh, booked on screen and has been pretty well documented off screen for those of us who pay attention to those sorts of things who don't like each other. And for, uh, I guess, I guess the booking the way this match, the way they did at the beginning was again, blending this reality with, with, with storyline, you know, our, this is a brawl, it's probably planned, but like Rory said, they're probably throwing potatoes at each other and it didn't look like they were. Um, and, then you get Vince out in not in announcer Vince character, but Vince McMahon, the guy who's running the running the place, Slaughter, Briscoe, all those guys come out, and it's like, oh, oh shit, do we have a real fight here? Is this is this the part of the match that's not supposed to be happening? You know, it, it, and so I really like the logic there, 
once they got into the ring and settled in for the last 10 minutes, other than the spots we've mentioned, this was really kind of a slow, careful match. It was it was a little bit reminiscent of their Iron Man match. There were some rest holds, and, and they didn't really do anything of note other than that corner uh, figure four, which we talked about, um, and then the end happened. So I thought the match was well booked, and I thought the fight sequence was good and logical, but I wasn't nearly as impressed with the, the action in the ring as Rory was. Yeah, I mean, you know, th- there's always the thought to a point. Well, it's like you know, given given what Brett knew at least, this was you know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen minutes of what was going to be a twenty-plus minute match. Right. And you don't stop. You don't stop a movie an hour into it and say, "What did you think?" Well, it's like I suppose to an extent at least we have to we have to at least say, "Well, there's going to be some more to come that we never quite got to see." I suppose. Um, it was okay. I, I, I liked it to a, to a point. As I say, in some respects, one just because of what followed, but also like the, this is a ridiculous match even before the finish. Like as in, there's just so many people around. Like there's about yeah about two minutes into the match, about half a dozen referees come out. Vincent Mann's out there. Pat Patterson's out there, and Brett and, and, and whatnot are kind of yeah walking the walking the way. And then yeah we get up the aisle way, and Vince is just stood there. Just, just stood there watching. Like, Vince, what the fuck are you doing? He's just out there, you know, like a in case the match gets out of hand. Well, it is. It's a match, right? Um, I, it was intriguing, but I, I, I you know, as I say, I, I don't think the action was particularly great. But ultimately, you know, you you can't you can't judge a book if you've only read two thirds of it. Well, I suppose you could, but you at least in wrestling, most people don't put a pay per view down before they finish it. Although I suppose in some respects you probably would if you were if you had the chance this year with WWF. Um, and then yes, we get to the finish. Um, you know, so we get Brett comes off the top. The the bump goes as planned. Um, Basically, the idea, as I understand it, was that the the big thing to placate everything was going to be that um, Brett was either going to submit or like look like he was submitting while the ref was down or something like that. Um, so Sean goes to put Brett in the sharpshooter, and he does. And then Elton gets up a bit more quickly than planned, takes about two or three seconds looking at Brett, turns and calls for the bell. Sean kind of collapses in the mood, um, in the move, sorry. Um, and then Brett kind of, they, they kind of pat it on Brett, who's like, oh, that's what's happened. Like, you know, there's a story that apparently Vader spoke to Brett, like, in the hour before the show, and basically said, any pinfall, kick out at one, any, don't get put in any submission. Um, you know, and also there's a thing with Brett who, who basically, you know, he, he asked Earl Henry the, the day of the show beforehand, you know, are you being told to fuck me over here? And Earl said, I swear I'm not. Um, but the minute it happened, Brett was like, ah. Uh, and sure, at least on the surface, was trying to act surprised. Brett gets up, spits in Vince's face. Good shot. Vince was about four or five feet down. Um, Sean grabs the title, and that, for least, is what we see. Goes off the air. Um, Rory, thoughts on any or all that? Oh, my goodness gracious me. Now I really have seen it all. As long as I'm a fan of professional wrestling, what will live with me, perhaps more than anything else, all the great stuff we've seen, and hopefully the great stuff we still have to come, was the look on Bret Hart's face just after Sean actually fed him his leg for what was supposed to be a sharpshooter reversal. It's about three or four seconds after the bell rang. And you've got Are you Brett. sure it wasn't Brett going, wait a minute, he hasn't spent 15 minutes working my leg. This is way too soon for this spot. Are you sure it wasn't oh, that? man. 
You're like a dog with a bone, Mr. Bamba. Come on. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Carry on. Today of all days. Come on. <laughs> Cut the poor guys some slack. Yes, and Brett, Brett's there. He's lying on his side, and he is just literally open mouth, and you can see him realizing. It's like to use another Simpsons reference when they show the clip of of Ralph being told by Lisa that uh, she never she never loved him. And oh my god, I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> really? <laughs> and a Bart plays the video back and says, look here, Lisa, you can see the exact, the exact place where his heart breaks. And that's exactly what happens here. Uh, so yeah, Vince definitely did not choo-choo-choose Brett on this occasion. But no, in all seriousness, it's just that... I, I, can, I can picture it, and all I'm looking at is my living room wall, but I can just see that picture of Brett right there, realising that at that point, they've done him. But Brett the Hitman Hart, 14 years of service, they'd done him. He'd been Wendy Richter, of all people. And he's thinking, how could they do this to me? And the only response he can have, well, I'm sure at that point, the response he was to fucking deck Shawn Michaels, but Shawn was acting surprised at this point. Shawn, he said he's not in on it. Brett probably thought, okay, Shawn's acting surprised. Okay, what can I do? I'm lost. I'm on live pay-per-view. I've got a spit of Vince McMahon. This is his doing. And as you say, Bob, it was quite a shot. It catches Vince uh, quite around the temple. Sean is hurriedly, and I mean hurriedly, sent to the back by Gerald Briscoe. Does what looks like a very half-hearted celebration by, by the rampway. And then we're done. Yeah, and the other bit was... On live the... pay-per-view. Yes, Heather rang the bell, kind of looks around a bit and went, no, nope, I'm going, and just vaults out of the ring and just legs it. And apparently he didn't stop. He just he just ran through the back and there was a car waiting. Like, you know, there was, they had contingency plans here. That guy, oh, yes. it wasn't like, you know, some of those, like, 1970s wrestling venues you hear where people got, like, guns and stuff and they're like, you know. <laughs> I, it's, it's not quite like that anymore, thankfully. Eric, thoughts on the finish? If this was in the United States as opposed to Canada, there probably would have been a lot more guns at the show. So thank goodness it wasn't Canada. <laughs> um, uh, I, what do you do with this? This this match, this finish is going to be analyzed as the wrestling equivalent of the Zapruder film for the next I don't know how many years. It was was Vince McMahon the only person who ordered the bell to be rang, or was there another? We'll never know. Um, uh, I think Rory summed it up squarely in that everybody seems to know what to do in that moment except for Brett who's left there just holding the bag in his hand like what the hell like if you've ever one time in college I went I was trying to meet some friends at a party and I went to the wrong party and I didn't realize it until I I was already like kind of there and then it was like, oh, shit, what do you do at this moment when you're the only person who knows, like, when you're the only person who's getting clued in on what's going on here? Well, you and, spit in the face of the person that owns the video, right? Well, I, I grabbed a beer, and then I then I left. Um, right. No, and, and so just despite everything, despite, you can't help but just feel bad for the guy. He basically got his pants well, – mean, Sean actually did, but Brett, metaphorically speaking, basically got his pants pulled down on television. And here we acted – 
instinctually. And his instinctual reaction was, as we found out, was to break shit and destroy shit. And that's great because I'd be mad too. Um, and especially we know how serious Brett takes all of this and how the finish was had been planned and had been agreed to beforehand. And Brett, being the traditionalist, never would have uh, predicted this was happening or going to happen, even though Vader and let's shout out to Vader. Uh, that's Vader's second second time he's kind of popped his head in and contributed positively on this show. Vader knew it, and and, and Brett said, no, no, it's it's fine. No, 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 Vader. I just feel bad for the guy because he his his own stubbornness and his own love for this fake sport that we talk about endlessly kind of got in the way of seeing what people have started to tell him might be a real possibility here. Yeah, I, I think it is the confliction, isn't it? It's the, you know, Brett knew enough to know it was possible, but part of him thought, there's no way they'll do this to me. I've been around too long. Um and, you know, I think you, you two both kind of alluded to the idea that Brett, look on the face of, of Brett's face was kind of confusion. I, I don't think it was. It was, oh, I was right all along. Or, you know, that part of my brain was right all along. Oh, dear, that, you know, everything I've been thinking for the last, you know, week, 10 days, whatever, ever since I, you know, formally handed in my notice to leave, is coming true. Um, and that was that moment. I mean, in terms of... The finish, and we'll, I think we'll, we'll look at some, some other possible scenarios in a little bit. Um, you know, it... Yeah, I mean, I, I, the fact it was anticlimactic, I mean, you know, um, Hebner's acting job, when he when he gets back up, and then kind of just like, sort of like staggers towards Brett on the floor, and it's like, well, yeah, yeah, you, you, you're quitting, ring the bell, and then nothing happens, and, and the music plays, and like, you know, Shaw just collapses in. And it's one of those things, like there's, this is not a finish that remotely looked like it was plausibly the end of the match. We weren't far enough in. It didn't look right. We hadn't had enough build. So it's completely obvious what had happened. Enough of the crowd were clued in that Brett was going, that there was a possibility that something weird might happen. And that was kind of always going to be the, the, the potential problem with this match potentially being great, was that given the knowledge that so many of the fans in the building had, and you have to think that most of them knew it, because, you know, word spreads pretty quickly... Um, given the knowledge most people had, they were just kind of waiting for the finish. I think that's one of the things that made the atmosphere a bit weird. Um, and so when the finish happened, when it did, it wasn't a, oh my God, what am I? It was like, oh, that's what they've done. That's what happened. I'm just trying to get your head around it. Um, and yeah, like I, it's it's not really a finish we could otherwise write. Um, we can discuss the scenario around it, but I don't know whether it's good or bad or great or awful, but it's all four, I suppose. Um... But yeah, a balmy finish uh, to a memorable match to a poor show. Uh, there's plenty more to discuss, but that was where the show ended. Sean grabbed the belt, bolted up the R way, and we uh, we faded to black. So I will. I'm obliged to say, Rory, your overall this thoughts on this show and a score any out of ten. Terrible professional wrestling show, which we which we will be talking about as long as people talk about professional wrestling. So how on earth do I write this? I'm actually taking out the latter. I'm not going to pay any heed because it's almost obvious. So I'm just going to write this on what we got, which was actually very little. We probably, we had one good brawl, which got a guy over, which was fine. We had two upcoming stars given a little chance to shine in a 
four on four match, fine. We had a good fight and a potentially good match for the WWF title, fine. We had nothing else, so I'm going to charitably give this show a two, which is actually the lowest rating I've given since I joined this project. It beats, if that's the right word, the two and a half I awarded to SummerSlam 1996. Two out of ten, but for importance going forward, my rating is almost off the charts. But yeah, just a bad professional wrestling show, which I recommend to nobody. Two out of ten. All right. The first hour of this show, and I can't emphasize this enough, is completely skippable. World Wrestling Federation. There's been plenty of hours of wrestling this year that have been skippable. This was a lot worse than some of that. What I was going to say is the World Wrestling Federation should grab the videotape, pull it out to the entire show until the Kane-Mankind match, snip it, and just burn it. And then pretend the Survivor Series was a two-hour show that started with Kane-Mankind. Um... The Kane, Mankind, and Shamrock NOD matches were good, and they both accomplished their set-out goals. Uh, the Austin-Owen match was as Angle was as done as, as decently as it could have been done. Potentially, it was a little bit too long. Um, but that match, another thing that accomplished its set-out goal on this show. The main event was logical, and it was hot at least from a crowd perspective, until the end. The match slowed down a little bit. But as you pointed out, Bob, this was, you know, that was only the second act of a three-act play that was supposed to be the main event. Um, The curtain never came up for that third act, so I'm assuming that match would have been pretty good. Um, They were clearly building towards something bigger. Um, In terms of what's certain to be long-term relevance, the main event was probably the only must-watch match of the entire project to date if we want to just factor in everything, but truly the show, more than any others, defies the traditional rating system on the matrix of the traditional rating system, only because Stone Cold was there, only because Kane and Mankind had a decent match. Rocky Shamrock was okay. I'm trying to pull the positives here. I'm going to say two and a half out of ten. Yeah, I'm with Rory on a two. Uh, it's, it's not a good show. It exposes a lot of what's wrong with the WWF, certainly in the, the, the lower and the mid card. Um, there's, there's no good wrestling on this show. Um, if it, I mean, if it wasn't for the finish, I mean, I suppose you always can ask the question, well, if it wasn't for the finish and the, the, the context, then there may have been a better main event that could have saved it. Um, but this could have been like an all-time bad show. As it is, it almost doesn't qualify. Um, just because, like, it's it's going to be one of the most significant shows, and therefore the fact the action was crap, the action could have been significantly better, and it would have been just as forgettable. I suppose is what I'm getting at. Um, but yeah, I'll give it a two out of ten. Um, now, obviously, that's not where the show well, the show finishes, not where the night finishes. Uh, Rory, I'll, I'll hand back to you for the for the second of uh, of three kind of you know readers you've got ready. Uh, give us some context about what happened in the immediate aftermath of the show. Okie dokie, now the fun really, really starts. Yes, as we've discussed, Survivor Series 97 went off the air very quickly and early on Sunday the 7th of November. As we've stated, the last thing the PPV audience saw was Shawn Michaels and his reluctant celebration, whilst Gerald Briscoe ushered him through the curtain. The show went off the air at 10.48pm local time. And the really interesting events were just getting started. Brett dejectedly placed himself on the top rope looking forlorn and saddened. 
He was then joined by Owen Hart and David Boy Smith, who tried and failed to console him. Hart then went on a rampage, smashing up WWF TV monitors and other equipment. Footage of this was actually shown on Raw the next night to promote the Tuesday night's encore presentation of the event. Hart then returned to the ring and very clearly spelt out the letters WCW in the air with his finger. Eventually, he, Owen and Davey went backstage. Whilst exact reports of what happened are still somewhat mixed, we can be fairly certain of the following. An enraged heart demanded to see McMahon, who was himself in discussions with Michaels at the time. Mm -hmm. Michaels said to Hart that he had nothing to do with the double cross. Hart then turned his attentions to McMahon and told him that if he was still in the locker room after he had finished showering, he didn't know what he'd do. McMahon did indeed remain present. And he says to Brett, it's the first time I ever had to lie to one of my talents. Hart shot this down immediately by rattling off around 15 lies Vince had told him that year alone. The first then, time I've ever had to lie, what, <laughs> today? Like, you know. in, in, that, in, that, in that minute, I think. God, he's got some front, that boy. Hart then shoved McMahon and then landed a punch to his face, knocking Vince down to the ground. He needed to be helped up by Briscoe and his son, Shane McMahon. Uh, during that confusion, somebody actually stepped on McMahon's ankle, and he was seen visibly limping around because of it for the rest of the night. Whilst McMahon was being attended to, Hart snarled at him, Am I still going to get my payoff? Brett would go on to tell the Calgary Sun a couple of days later, I'm on my way home and the WWF can go to hell. This is the ultimate final slap in the face and I'm washing my hands of the whole damned organisation. He gave me his word and then he ordered the timekeeper to ring the bell. Hart did indeed storm out of the arena and for WWF that night, never to return. Eric, thoughts on, on any of that? From that perspective, it makes Vince seem like the the uber heel here. I mean, it seems like Brett was promised a finish. It seems like they agreed to a finish, and Vince pulled the rug out from under him. I don't know. I don't. Uh, even though I'm a big professional wrestling fan, I never advocate for violence to be settled here uh, in any in any context. But it does kind of feel good to know that Vince McMahon, you know, got floored by Bret Hart in a non kayfabe moment, doesn't it? It just it does kind of work. Oh, but, but, but let's be clear, Vince let him hit him. Let's well, be clear shit. about that. Well, of course, Bob. Which, which sounds like a load of shit, right? You know. <laughs> Brett, Brett's lucky he did because Vince, the 52-year-old, you know, suit-wearing executive, would have would have really let him have it if they were on equal on equal footing. We learned that later on. So, um, but yeah, the, the initial reports make sure make it seem like Vince put one over on Brett and uh, paint Brett as this, uh, the, 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 the super face in all this, somebody who would have tried to go along with the wrestling tradition, except for he didn't because he wouldn't put over Sean. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, the, it sure seems like Vince is the evil, evil doer here. I, I I have my doubts over the story. If for nothing else, that I think when when Vince squared up to 
Brett or Brett squared up to Vince and Vince said give me your best shot I think Brett would have taken Vince down with a single leg and then started working the knee but you know there we are uh, Roy what do you think of uh, oh make of, it uh, stop <laughs> okay I'm, I'm glad we're on uh, we're paying so much attention to the severity of this situation on this <laughs> programme tonight uh, yeah and on that topic I just wish I mean I, I do like Brett's line am I still going to get my payoff? The only thing better than that is if when he had reeled back to punch Vince, he had said to him, look at that manoeuvre. I don't think it was all about money. (laughs) Absolutely. Yes, I don't think that happened, sadly. Yes, all of this just based on this uh, this reader that I put together. Based on this alone, and we're going to get deeper into things in a second, you can't help but just have pure sympathy for Brett here. Vince comes across like that total arsehole not even just a promoter, a total arsehole boss at work, the sort of person who has stupid slogans like progress and customer first written up on the wall, and has the nerve to say, it's the first time I ever had to lie to one of my talent, when we all know managers lie a thousand times a day anyway, when they're not just stood around the kitchen drinking coffee all day. Yes, I might have a grievance here, moving swiftly on. Um, what, 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 what can you say to that? I mean, Brett was, I mean, I, I do not advocate violence. I mean, I spent a lot of my time watching scripted worked, um, worked fights, of course, for the benefit of this project and for my own uh, personal enjoyment. So, but I'm not a violent man, but here, <clears throat> Brett had a reason to punch him. And it's like we said during the, uh, during the discussion of the immediate aftermath of the match, Brett just didn't know what to do. I mean, there's no doubt if Michaels hadn't act surprised, Brett would have ended him in the ring right there and then. The only thing he had the wits to do was just try to spit at Vince McMahon to try to articulate his rage and here he had the chance and he punched the guy right in the face and I can't really say based on this alone uh, that I blame him and even here again we talk, we're going to talk a lot about this as we go through the month but even here the WWE for realising the let's say potential of what happened by using the footage of Brett smashing up the monitors as a lead in to try to get people to buy the encore presentation of the pay-per-view oh god is nothing sacred it's it's all carny bullshit. I, I I lost a lot of respect for Brett when he didn't spark out Vince twenty seconds after the match, or when he didn't just like you know like the it, it was almost like Brett was really angry but decided to let it out in a work pro wrestling sense. Like he's really angry. I oh, know. I'll oh <laughs> you know I'll, I'll give a nod and a wink by spelling out WCW and then I'll smash up a load of orders. No, that's not a normal reaction. If you're pissed off, just beat the fuck out of Shawn Michaels and then just have, like, a mass brawl. you got your boys at the back. Like, you know, if you really want to cause them havoc, cause them havoc. don't wait backstage and then just get a, a shot in on a guy that isn't wanting to defend himself. Like, you know, I don't know. Um, it, you know, the, the, my, my bigger take on it, is it me or does everyone come out of this story badly? Oh, yeah. Oh, they yeah. all do, oh, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, no, like, we'll get there. We'll get there. Like, as in, like, there's no good guys in the story. No one comes out well. Like, I think Brett looks like just as much of a dick as everybody else. Yeah. Um, you know, but yeah, I, I think in the aftermath, they say like, don't, don't get, get really angry. And then, oh, I know what's the, what's the best work pro wrestling thing I can do. I know I'll throw some monitors around and you know just tear things up a bit while while once the character go off the air, and then grow a set once he got backstage. Like if I if I'd have seen that, I'd have probably just started beating up Michaels in the middle of the ring. Um, you know whether what what would have happened there. I mean that would have been a that would have made this an all time a pay per view 
if Bret and Michaels just started fighting mid ring and then they're, they're just, they're just stu- you know, because you know, they, they have the guys, the, the angle they planned involved a, a big run in and then a double run in from, from both the sets of, uh, both the sets of seconds, if you like, Owen and Bulldog and the Canadians and, and Helmsley and China and whatnot. If Bret and Sean start fighting, everything, so the whole, it could have been a riot. Um, yeah, it would have been a great way to end the show. Um, yeah, I'm like, you know, I, like, I kind of, uh, t- to me, as I say, like, that's the natural reaction. I kind of lost a lot of respect for Brett because he did that and then went backstage and then, you know, and then punched Vince as if that was his retaliation. I don't know. Roy, this whole thing, like, everyone just looks like, everyone looks bad. That's my, that's my one takeaway from this whole story. Oh, there's no, in the in the whole deal, knowing it as we do now, there's no, <clears throat> there's no baby face in this. Like, based on my write-up on the immediate aftermath, yes, you have to side with Brett, but he, he allowed all of this to happen by shooting down every single suggestion that was put forward. Every single last one, he came up with some reason as to why it wasn't good enough. Even there was, we'll probably get. I'm, I'm going to mention it now. One which I know we were talking about off air, Bob, which you really like, which apparently was put forward by the Anvil of all people. Oh yeah, which would involve uh, Brett having Sean beaten in the middle of the ring, then the hearts come down, heels turning a heel on Brett, beat the hell out of him, put Michaels on top for the victory. What a fantastic finish that is. Look what, what a fucking brilliant solution. It's like, it's, it does everything. It gets the title off Brett. It puts the title on Michaels. It puts monumental heat in Canada, remember, on the rest of the Hart family. And it gives Brett a final match with anybody you want with. with, 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 Andrew, I, with I, I, ha- I have dog. no idea how Brett Hart did not accept that solution, right? Because one, it would have made Vince happy and it would have caused all those problems. The story out of that angle is not sure Michael's winning the title. It's what will Brett do against his brothers, quote-unquote. That was the story. Like, Brett did... The whole, re- the, the, the whole reason this all exists is that Brett Hart did not want to put over Shawn Michaels in Canada. Yeah. That finish does not put over Shawn Michaels in Canada. It does as a byproduct, but it's not the lead story in the finish. I read that, and I, I, I'm like, I'm 40,000 words into the, the, the monthly notes, right? It's, it's, a, it's been a disaster of a month from a personal life perspective. In that sense, everything's fine. But, and I just, I read that, and I went, that's it. That's the finish. Like, look, why isn't Bret Hart happy with that? Because the, the the whole point is, is what do you do with Bret Hart in the 30 days between when he loses the title and when he needs to leave? And I thought, well, if I'm Bret, you know, that finish, you know, it puts the title on Sean, but in a way that doesn't put Sean over, because I imagine Bret would have had a hell of a lot of leverage in how they would have pieced together the mechanics of that, and they could have done anything you like there to have made that work. Like, you could have had a ref bump, Sean could have been tapping the hell out, then the the Heart Foundation could have come out, and maybe, like, what you could have done there, the Heart Foundation come out, DX follow right in behind, and they're like shit, they're beating up Brett, what's going on here? Heart Foundation could have beat him up for a couple of minutes, DX could have gotten a few more, and then, you know, Sean could have just crawled over and pinned Brett. Everyone wins! And well, I, then, I can't... 
and then and then and to the point I get, Eric, you may well be yeah. about to say it, is that yeah. the follow up to all of that is the following st- the story coming out of the show is what's Brett going to do before he leaves, and the whole thing of the Heart Foundation saying we thought you were our brother, but you turned our back on us, and so now we're turning our back on you, and then <coughs> if he's fit, the big main event for December is Brett Hart against Owen Hart. Brett That's gets it. to put Owen Hart on the way out the door. Everyone's happy. Everyone wins. I've read that and I just went, oh, I read the first bit and I kind of invented the rest myself. And I'm like, what's the problem here? And I, I, I still don't get it. Yeah, just, just, to, uh, just, just quick, just to, to finish up, just the Brett's, when, when that was put forward, I'll let Eric in now, when that was put forward, Brett's reported response was, and I think this says quite a lot about him, it was, I'm not going to put my family through that shit again. Oh, and I'm like, Brett, it's a work, mate. Come on. You're one of the best storytellers in the business. I know how intensely you feel this stuff, and that's great. Put, put his family through that. Put them in a major storyline. I I that's like... what I mean. That's exactly my point. He's ah, Brett just ties himself in not so often with how much he believes this stuff. And again, I'm going to, I said it just now, I'll say it again. Being passionate about your craft is a fantastic thing. And that is one of Brett's major positives. But so, sorry, I thought you said passionate about your crap, um, which I thought was just a, a very, very interesting way of uh, describing Brett's you could, you approaches. Could, you, could, you could also look at it that way around if you're a certain promoter. But, but yes, it, it was right there, but he shot it down because it didn't involve him pinning Shawn Michaels clean in the middle of the ring in Canada, which is what this was all about. And the more you break it down, just the more, the more, the more the sympathy arose. Eric. Father, my cloud of self-satisfaction. I miss whether or not you had Brett going over or Owen going over in their blow-off. Uh, well, Owen goes over, right? I mean, surely. Yeah. I mean, that's that's yeah. uh, Brett. Brett's not going to go. Creative control. Owen, you're losing this one. I need the win going into WCW. Like, there's, that's never happening. Well, are, are we sure? Uh, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I think so. But, but you're absolutely you're absolutely right. I. I I couldn't agree with you more. I don't think that's very uh, hidden at this point. If, if Brett doesn't want to put anybody over going out, put Owen over. Owen has essentially one clean but relatively fluky win over Brett, where Brett was working a knee injury at WrestleMania 10, and there were enough, and then Brett won the heavyweight title a later in the night from Yokozuna. So there were enough of uh, excuses for that. Uh, match at WrestleMania 10. Brett then won the cage match and won the feud, and then I think he won a match. He's won a match on Raw since then. They've had a couple of other televised matches since then, but other than on house shows, they've been relatively kept apart in terms of in-ring action. Put Owen over Brett clean. Make Owen, you know, give Owen that rub to essentially replace Brett Hart as that, like, workhorse Canadian superstar that you can tour under when you're up north of the States. That's an absolutely brilliant idea. I cannot believe that the two guys who came out looking the most savvy about the wrestling business after all this are Vader and Jim the Anvil Neidhart. But, <laughs> but, they, but they truly, truly do. I, I have no more to say with you, Bob, other than that's about your best promo that you've cut about an illogical or about a logical finish since the World War Three ninety six promo that you've cut. So bless you, my Oh, don't get me started on that. I just, I've just got, like... Here's the vision, right? I mean, you could, there's loads of ways of doing it. But you have the match, 
and Brett's in a really dark position. Outrun DX. They start beating up Brett. Soon followed by, you know, maybe just Owen and Bulldog, if you, right. if you really want to frame it right. And then, because DX don't want to fight a fair fight, because they're more of a heels in Canada than the, 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 well, half Canadian, half British are, they just stand off. And then Brett recovers, and then Owen and Bulldog turn and start attacking Brett. The reaction to that would have been volcanic. And then you just do the finish, and then... Sean crawls over, so it would have been, sorry, it would have been Hunter and China. In my head, I had Hunter and Sean as the invaders, but there we are. And then they, they, they do the thing. Sean covers Brett, wins the match. That's the end of the show. You, you know, assuming Owen's fit, and if he is not, you can still do Brett and Bulldog, which isn't ideal. You then get four weeks of great promos. Owen saying, you know, you turn your back on on everything we bought, everything. That, that, that's, that, that's impossible to get wrong, right? And I can't work out why, you know, if Brett had that much of an issue putting over Sean, and given the amount of crate and control he had and everything else, imagine if he'd have been pitched that and went, well, I don't get what I want, I have to lose to Sean, but I get to put my brother over 30 days later and put him in a much better position than he is now. Owen Hart is still struggling to get over as an up-mid-car main event act, despite nearly ending Steve Austin's career. This could have sent him really, really to that precipice, to the point of being a main event act. And, And I don't know why... That you know, I, I I had a bit in my notes saying, shall we discuss alternative theories? I think we will, but I kind of, I think that's it. Like you know, there was these, th- there's everything else here regarding you know, Brett was offered so many different scenarios, or Brett offered up so many different scenarios. I'll put over anyone else in Canada, or I'll put over Sean on any other night. Um, you know, and again, this is why I kind of think that Brett comes out looking a bit of a dick, and it's like because in the sense that it's Brett, nobody cares this much. It doesn't matter this much. You know, oh, I, I've got to, i got to protect my image in Canada. It's like it's 1997. Everyone knows it's a work. The match started in 90% of the building, if not 100%, knew you were leaving. Right? right? There's, there's nothing to protect here. There's no business to protect. There's no image to protect. Right? If you're getting that works out about, just lose the fucking match. And this is why I mean that no one really comes out of this looking. Apparently, Bret Hart was considered. Bret Hart was like, I don't want to put over Sean, and he's got his reasons, but. You know, stop taking it so seriously, Brett. Because that it's just one thing that annoys you about Brett Hart more than anything else. He takes things so fucking seriously, and yeah. it's mostly net positive. But there's always that undercurrent of Brett. I can't imagine Brett Hart's that much fun to work with as a wrestler. <laughs> as in, as in, I can imagine you were sat down with him, and he'd be trying, you'd be kind of discussing ideas, or maybe you're putting a match together if you're working with him, and and you're just thinking, well, here's a cool idea. And he's like, no. That's going to ruin my image. It's like, you know, Brett, if I had some advice to Brett, have some fun. You know, that kind of thing, right? Stop taking it so seriously. And it's like, of all the ideas and all the stories and whatnot, there was just this idea, you know, Brett's like, well, you know, I've got to match you with Steve Lombardi, Brooklyn Brawler, I'll put him over, as stupid as that sounds, and we need to put over Undertaker or Ken Shamrock. We need to put over Jeff Jarrett. Brett Hart's worried about his image, and he's like, yeah, I'll put over Jeff Jarrett. Brett, that would have killed you far worse than, than any clean pin in Montreal would have done. And it's just like... I don't know, like, like, like I, I, I'm kind of on the attack on Brett here. Vince deserves 
all of this shit as well. I've 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 read through all of this. We've done this show. I've been working through everything else. I I honestly, the main conclusion I come to, this is exactly how Vince wanted it to play out. Because there's there are so many ways of stopping this. I cannot come to any other conclusion. The reason Vince said I wanted Brett to hit me or I allowed him to hit me because he wanted him to. Because Vince wanted to, Vince wanted to show he had that power over Bret Hart, and he was able to make him snap like that. Shawn Michaels looks like a dick, but he always looks like a dick. I, if, if anything, Shawn Michaels is the guy I have the most respect for, because at least he's just like you know, I don't give a shit. I'm fine. I'm, I'm happy doing whatever. I, you know, Sean, Sean's very, Sean has a lot of problems, but at least he's very upfront about them. I guess is my point. Um, Rory, I've, I've, I haven't really gone anywhere in the last five minutes. Just take over for me, and I'll, I'll, I'll reconnect some coherence in a few minutes' time. <laughs> uh, one of the ten thousand things you mentioned there, but I'm going to pick up on just one of them for now. Is uh, Brett being picked up on a point I made earlier as well about Brett being this master storyteller, which he is in the ring, storyteller par excellence, in my opinion. So much so, he ends up believing all this nonsense to the point where the final chapter in the story is him being the Canadian hero, which just so happens, wow, it means he has to beat Shawn Michaels, the evil, the evil American bastard in the middle of the ring in Montreal. And at the same time, how can you square such perfect closing storytelling like that with somebody who'll be willing to put over the Brooklyn brawler for the WWF title. It doesn't make sense. And that exposes the major flaw in Brett's quote-unquote logic. This isn't for him about storytelling. It probably is to some degree about being the Canadian hero. I don't even really think it's about the WWF title. It's all about Michaels. The realest thorn in his side... No, well, it's all least. about Brett, isn't it? No. Isn't that the whole point? No, no, no. In Brett's head, it's all. No, I'm saying in Brett's head, it's all about Michaels. No, in Brett's head, it's all about no, no. Brett, right? I, I, yes. I, it's oh, not, it's not the point. Like Brett, Brett Hart, it's not about Shawn Michaels beating him. It's about what Shawn Michaels beating Brett Hart looks like on Brett Hart, right? Isn't that the whole point at the end of the day? Well, no, well, that, that loses a bit of the of the context behind everything because there was an instance. I think it was in Lowell, Massachusetts. Where Brett walked up to Sean and said, "Hey man, I'm happy to put you over." And Sean That's basically said, said, "Hey, fuck you, buddy." And that that cannot be lost as the insinuating event for really all of this. Um, so I just don't want that that to be lost. It wasn't that Brett fully refused to put over Sean; it's that Brett fully refused to put over Sean after Sean went heel on him. That's exactly where I was going to bring up that exact example. Fair. I think it, I think it happened again a week or so before the event. But it definitely happened a couple of months ago before as well, as you rightly say, Eric. That's where I was going to go with this. And that's going to eat at a professional like Bret Hart, especially when it's that evil, slimeball, dirty American hyena, Shawn Michaels. And he just, his pride, they say, they say pride comes before a fall. Well, no, no true words have ever been spoken here. Bret just, he just, at this point, just looks like he just couldn't let that go. He just, he had to prove in a, work stage professional wrestling match that he was better than Shawn Michaels by defeating him by either pinfall or submission in a match which isn't real, which is decided ultimately by the stroke of your boss's pen. Yet for somebody like Brett, that would have been enough to prove that he is the best. Because for whatever reason, in his mind, he needed that to be proved. And it all comes back again to him taking this stuff just so fucking seriously. I'm like... Mate, just take a step back. You know, yeah, okay, so Michael's beat you in Montreal. 
and that's not maybe the perfect story you want to tell. So what? You know, the world's still going to turn. We've all got to get up for work tomorrow morning. It's not going to change anything. It's not like Brett even had this great idea. No, he doesn't. You know, if if Brett had this killer idea that involved, I'm not putting Sean over on this show, I'm not doing it, but here's a great way where we can all win. Like, there was, like, Brett's, all of Brett's plans were terrible, right? And it was like, I'll put, I'll, I'll, you know, that's the point. If anything, that was the problem, was that all Brett's plans were terrible because there were so many of them. I'll put over anyone, anywhere, except this guy in this spot, which is the only match we're doing. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't know. Let, let's, let's pivot a little bit um, onto Vince McMahon's role in all of this. I know we addressed this a bit earlier. Um... We talk about people coming out of this story looking, you know, not very good. Um, Eric, as I say, like, my, my logical conclusion is this is what Vince wanted. No, nothing else really makes sense because anyone with any kind of smarts could have stopped this long before it happened. The only reason you wouldn't is because you didn't want to. Or am I underthinking this? Uh, yeah, I've defended Vince McMahon I think I have more, pretty much more than any other contributor on on your project to date. But I will even stop short of saying that Vince McMahon could have seen this whole series of dominoes falling the, the way that it did. I think Rory hit the nail on the head perfectly accurately lately or earlier when he said uh, Vince McMahon is routinely impulsive with his decisions, even though sometimes when he's not, um, he makes the right choice. So in this instance, I don't know. I don't know how one could predict uh, all of these dominoes falling the way they did. I think it's more accurate to say that when the dust settled, um, at least until those interviews on Raw, which made Vince seem like the biggest sociopathic heel boss, <laughs> worse than anything Rory's ever experienced. I hope um, it's, it's close. <laughs> right. Cheers to you, mate. Um, but at least in that interim period, yeah, Vince Vince was the fortunate recipient of some bad decisions on the part of Bret Hart in the moment, either punching Sean and, 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 and taking control of the moment in that instant, or not doing it at all. But not work, you know. Bret worked it, like you said, essentially. And so I think for a while, Vince backed himself into a point where, yeah, all this decision making seemed to work out for a period of time. Um, so I don't want to give Vince credit saying that he puppet mastered this whole this whole outcome. I think Brett, God. Uh, Let me rephrase the question. Yeah. He didn't plan it all out, but he saw it all falling into place and did nothing to stop it. Because well, isn't the whole point, isn't the whole point that Vince, Vince wants to be Shawn Michaels, right? He wants to be the good-looking guy that all the women want, the the, the talented athlete. Yeah, look, it's it's really it, there's no real acting or mystery to it. Watch Vince and Sean on screen any point together. Go back to some of those promos earlier this year. Sean is saying whatever the fuck he wants, and Vince is lapping it up. I don't know some of it's a character, but I bet Vince looks at Sean Michaels and goes, "I wish I was him." I wish I was as good looking, I wish the women were forming all over me, I wish I had a, a body like that, that kind of thing. He probably would have wanted to be a bit taller, I suppose, and a bit more muscular. But yeah, most of the package is there. And he probably wishes he had Shawn Michaels' attitude as well. 
the ability just to not give a fuck. And isn't that kind of the point? Was that, you know, like Vince comes out on TV a couple of weeks later and says, you know, Brett doesn't respect the traditions of wrestling. It's like, Shawn Michaels has dropped the title six, like four or five times as we started this project. Once via pinfall and about three times via forfeit. Like, Shawn Michaels is the exact guy when it comes to, you know, not respecting wrestling traditions. Right. And, and, and that's the thing, and like, uh, maybe, you know, you're right, like, you know, you, cut, you couldn't have plotted this out this far out in advance. Brett, can you go and sign for WCW? I've called them, they don't want me anymore. Oh, shit. You couldn't have <laughs> plotted that out, right? But Vincent Mann, you know, I think, when you look at between what happened with Brett and Sean, I think there was a way Vincent Mann could have fixed it. I just don't think he wanted to. And so when things started just to spin out of control a little bit, Vince could have nipped it in the bud. He could have changed the match. We're talking, you know, six to eight weeks out. He could have done anything he liked. I think he went, you know what, I need a bit of an edge here. WCW are kind of, you know, uh, running the place at the moment. I've got a real-life rivalry here. I can see where this is going. Let's hope I can make some money out of it. You know, I, that, that's that's my view on it. He didn't. I, I don't think he dictated it, but equally, I think the guy, very guy that could have stopped it, did very, very little to stop getting its way. God, I, I, if that if that helps, as a question, it, it does, and it, it. I think it brings me to a, a point that I was kind of meandering towards before you rightfully redirected, which was, you know. We have to consider the fact that Vince McMahon is the guy who has hands-on day-to-day control of the WWF, and he has since 1980-something or other, early 80s, 79. And over that time, he's managed personalities like Andre the Giant, Bob Backlund, the Iron Sheik, Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Bruno San Martino, superstar Billy Graham, Hulk Hogan, for crying out loud. Let's mention him two or three times. You can't, you cannot build a successful wrestling program having as hands-on of, a, uh, of an influence as Vince does day to day, without being a master manipulator and a master manager of personalities. And so, Bob, I think to the extent that Vince may have known, hey, if I, if I mess with Brett in this way, or if I propose these scenarios to him, this is the logical outcome based on my 15-year relationship with him and how seriously I know he takes it. I don't think that's a, that's a, a logical leap to make at all. I think that's squarely on the money. So I think the, the the credit goes to Vince McMahon generally, knowing knowing how to manage his his performers and knowing the personalities of his guys to get what was ultimately a favorable outcome for him. I don't think Vince McMahon let Bret Hart hit him. I think he wanted him to hit him. Wow, I, that's the right. uh, that's that's my takeaway here is that. Vince McMahon enjoyed that punch. All right, it, once he woke up from it, that you know, maybe maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong from that, but I'm just I'm just kind of following my logic path down the trail and going, you know, if 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 Vince can get Bret Hart to hit him, he's won, you know, because he's got one over on Bret Hart. He he made Bret Hart take it so seriously that he he lost the the divide between what's real and what's not. Rory. Hang on just a second. Um, the very next day on Nitro, that wonderful punch you talk about was made play of on WCW television. Eric Bischoff called Bret Hart a knockout kind of guy. So I'm not quite sure how the punch, at least in the short term, really helped Vince. Well, yeah, but he obviously he was, you know, the, he hadn't thought of the aftermath afterwards. Well, I'm, 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 about, I'm about Vince's own that. head. Oh, I want to his own yeah. head, thinking like I want to about the, the repercussions. Like I just thought about what happened in the the immediate half an hour afterwards. 
we're all talking about ending stories here. I suppose ending a story and beginning another one, being punched in the face, is one way to do it, I suppose. But yeah, you might, I think you both made really good points on the topic of Vince's manipulation. So I'm going to throw this question out. We know that uh, Vince wanted Brett to leave on the uh, 22nd of September. And we know that the match at Bad Blood between Sean and Undertaker was for a shot at the WWF title. So I'm going to throw this one out to you guys. If Brett doesn't leave, does Brett be Sean at Survivor Series 97 even happen? Yes, what? because it's in Montreal. Okay, and how does it end? Uh, what, so we're saying that Brett's staying, Vince never what? asked him to leave. Um, to be honest, it could end with the finish that Brett shot down. Yes, it could end. It could true. end with with the heart. You know, if we're talking about, you know, that there, there, there's that. Yeah, you know, we didn't mention. There's, there's so much we haven't mentioned, but that you know, there's one of the undercurrents in in the story and in Vince's talk to Brett leading up to the leading up to the show is that Vince is like, you know, I, uh, you know, this whole you're a heel, but you know, we've got enough heels now. I kind of want you back, baby face. I suspect it would have been the beginning of a Bret Hart face turn, and that probably would have been the best way of doing it. Would have been turning Owen, Bulldog, and everyone on Brett. And then the, that they can feud through WrestleMania. Sean can do his own stuff with whoever. And then, yeah, Bret Hart's back to the baby face for the last year, 18 months of his career. Would be my guess. Yeah, and it makes Bret the wronged baby face looking for revenge rather than the clean-cut R-shocks. Look how nice my hair is, baby face, which doesn't cut it anymore. There's no way he could turn back being that guy after bad-mouthing the US fans anyway. But I, I suspect I think... he might have channeled a little bit of sting. Uh, in terms of, okay, you know, the car- America's turned on me, my family's turned on me, he might have come that little, like, lone wolf-type character, you know, I'm just going to, you know, whatever, I don't know, whether he could have to pull it off, whatever, but I suspect that would have been where he'd gone. He wouldn't have gone back to Brilliant with Bret Hart 12 months ago, he'd have gone in a completely different direction, but one that would have made him a sting-type babyface. And then it ends with hitting Vince McMahon with a baseball bat. Yeah, I can see that working. <laughs> but my, my point was... Well, I, no, Canada, hockey stick. <laughs> thought about this one. Yeah, I, I do not think that you would have got Brett Michaels at Survivor Series if Brett was staying. I don't think so. I think this was, based on what you two have said, put it very eloquently about Vince effectively playing the role of puppet master, playing these two real-life rivals up against each other for his own personal amusement and in his own head for the good of the company, whether or not you agree with that. I don't think this would have happened. I think a light went off in, in uh, Vince's head. Yes, we're doing it at Montreal. What better way to bring it to an end than having Brett Michaels at, at, uh, in uh, Montreal? Not that he knew at that time, perhaps, that Brett would shoot down every suggestion and refuse anything that didn't involve him beating Michaels clean in the middle of the ring. But on this score, I think Vince knew what he was doing. Eric, let's talk about Shawn Michaels, uh, the third wheel in this story, but 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 a significant one nonetheless. Um, what's your thoughts on his role in all of this? <laughs> uh, uh, well, as I said earlier, you know, uh, ultimately some combination of Shawn Michaels and Vince McMahon was the instigator for Bret Hart not wanting to do business on the night of the Survivor Series in terms of putting Shawn over. Um, but I don't know why in, in November, September, October 1997, anybody is surprised that Shawn Michaels being a dick. He was probably pilled out of his mind when Brett said, hey, Shawn, I'll put you over. And Shawn was probably like, what? And never, Shawn has said it multiple times, he's not putting anybody over. So I don't know why Brett would have thought 
if Shauna would have reciprocated that, that humble gesture, I'm sure is what Britt thought of and saying, Oh yeah, pal, I'll put you over too. No way, Sean, that's just not going to happen. So even in that sense, Brett was naive thinking, Oh, I can be peacemaker with a pilled out egomaniac like Shawn Michaels. <laughs> so I think Shawn Michaels is, is, um, he's the star player on a team who has no idea of, of anything larger than, than his role. And, and what I mean by that is sometimes you have players on teams that are like, de facto assistant coaches or that are team leaders or that are locker room guys. And sometimes you have superstars who are just good at their craft and nothing else. And they don't contribute and they may even detract to the larger team atmosphere, but they're so good you have to keep them around and really feature them. In reading the Observer and the Torch and the the, the, uh, the reports, it doesn't seem like Shawn Michaels had much of a hand, an active hand in any of this. He was going to lose to Brett. That was going to be the, the, the finish. Uh, he was going to then... Uh, the disqualification finish was going to be fine, and then Triple H and 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 whoever else risk. It, it's so unclear uh, which any number of uh, Vince McMahon's lackeys, probably all of them to some degree, decided on this this screw job finish. And Sean was like, "Oh, I'll go along with that too." So, you know, Sean, whatever. Sean knew. Sean didn't know. Sean was part of it. Sean wasn't part of it. The point is, I think no matter what Vince McMahon and company decided, ultimately was what Shawn Michaels would have done. And so in a sense, despite the fact that Shawn Michaels was more than likely an active participant in this screw job finish, I don't think, I don't think too much of a, of a, of scrutiny can be directed towards Shawn Michaels because he, he, he's shown throughout this whole scenario that he's not really an active participant in anything but the Shawn Michaels character. Shawn Michaels is the quarterback that doesn't appreciate his offensive line stopping him getting smashed 20 times a game, right? Exactly, exactly. He's the the guy that throws the inch-perfect pass and thinks, oh, look at me, I'm great. You know, I'm the star of this team, and I know quarterbacks to a point are, but doesn't appreciate the fact that there's actually a lot of guys working some very unsung roles that are helping him look really good. Uh, Rory, he is is the third wheel in this story, but he is a wheel nonetheless worth, worth mentioning. Yes, indeed. I don't think the people from Unsolved Mysteries will be knocking at my door anytime soon when I put forward on this podcast right now that Shawn Michaels was almost, no, no, sod almost certainly. He knew the finish of this match. You could, as it's, it's Wade Keller who picks up on it in the PW Torch. Just watch the way Michaels looks towards Hebner when Hebner gets up all too quickly. Michaels would have been shocked if he didn't know what was, what was going on. And the way he quickly... Uh, just happens to turn his head away after he's been looking at Hefner for a couple of seconds, gives him away. But at this point in time, as Eric says, that's not really important because it doesn't tell us anything new about Michaels. We've always known through the course of this, certainly in the last 18 months, since the last, last two years, I'd say, last two years of this project, we, would, so we, we have come across numerous occasions so many sometimes we don't even have time to talk about them, about what a grade A jerk Shawn Michaels is. He's pilled out of his gourd every single day. He's a complete twat to people backstage. He's not very nice company. He does everything he can for himself. Yet here, he just happened to be the other guy involved in the match. Now that does in no way placate him, in no way makes better, ameliorates anything he has done in the past. But here are valid, well, not just valid, correct criticisms of the man. They're not particularly relevant here. He's, in this particular chapter of the story, 
he's the guy who ends up winning the WWF title. He's the least important. You've got to ask yourself, does Shawn Michaels like being the least important person in any situation? I think we all know the answer to that, which might go ahead to explain some of his behaviour on screen on the Raws going forward this month. Yeah, um, Shawn might be the character I'd like the most coming out of this. Um, just in the sense that there's no mystery, there's no, you know, he's a twat and he's upfront about it. I, I, I have a, a level of admiration for people like that. Um, you know, Brett says, Sean, will you put me over? No. There's there's something, there's something refreshing about that, right? No, I ain't bothering. I ain't doing it. I got a win over you. I don't want to give it back. He's just a bit of a dick. It's like, you know, it's like, don't be, don't be surprised when dicks are dicks, right? Isn't that the point? Brett put, Brett put his faith in people that they were going to deliver. Like, you know, that makes him like a bit of an, yeah, an idiot. You know, Vince McMahon is, is the guy that's, you know, sending his one of his best arms to the opposition. Sean's just in his own little universe. He's like, I'm the best guy here. You're going to treat me as such. I, 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 you know, that's the thing. Like, like Sean's the kind of guy I like to deal with because I know what I'm working with. With Brett, I've got this guy that overthinks everything and you know takes everything way too seriously. It's like you know, I don't know. But yeah, he, he is the third wheel in the story. Um, he doesn't come out of it looking particularly great. Um, you know, goes backstage. Like, surely at that point, Brett, were you in it? Like, surely just go, yeah, I was. You know, here's the, we were in it. No, nothing to do with it. Didn't know about it. Like, what a hero. Like, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm taking, they're not taking it seriously enough. But, yeah, like, it's, to, to me, like, I, Sean's the guy where everything's on his sleeve, right? Um, there's no mystery there. Don't be surprised when the guy that always acts like a dick acts like a dick is is kind of my point. Um, that's Shawn Michaels' MO. As I say, he, you know, he's he, he gets to act like that because he's their biggest star. Um, and Vince McMahon could have at any point attempted to cut it out one way or another. But Vince McMahon's embraced it. And so Vince can't complain that, you know, not that he necessarily would in this situation, that Sean act like he did. And to a point, Bret Hart should know better. I think is a long story short. That, you know, <laughs> the, the, the guys give you more than enough reason not to trust him. Don't trust him one more time. But anyway, um, Rory, well, it's not the end of the discussion on this show regarding this topic, but, but, but any, any final thoughts at this point before we start talking some TV? Brett, just do what your boss says, mate. <laughs> I've, 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 I've learned in life that your life is so much easier if you do that, even if you're going on to a new, um, uh, to a new uh, place of employment. At the end of the day, nobody comes out of this smelling of roses. And again, as long as people are talking about professional wrestling, people will be finding new angles, new things about it will be discovered, who knew what, when, what other plans were. Because this was something which dirty, rotten wrestling promoters have been doing for decades, screwing people over for money, for their positions, to kick them out of the company. It's nothing new in the world of professional wrestling. But I'll tell you one thing, it's something very, very new in the happy-go-lucky, straight-laced, number one in the world, WWF, pay-per-view, all of those things, this just doesn't happen. It didn't need to happen. But with the three people involved, I'm almost not surprised it happened. Eric? I just can't believe that Bret Hart could be this 
this naive, uh, Pollyanna attitude, 25, 30, 40 years in the wrestling business. Like, come on, Brett. Like, so many opportunities to stop this from happening, and it did. Uh, and it's hard. It, it sucks for the guy, but it's hard to feel, like, as bad as we should for the, for it happening because of, of everything that could have been done to stop it. But I, I think I think that we'll, we can move on and, and, and keep the show rolling. Seven days ago at the Survivor Series, did you or did you not screw Bret Hart? Some would say, I screwed Bret Hart. Bret Hart would definitely tell you, I screwed him. I look at it from a different standpoint. I look at it from the standpoint of the referee did not screw Bret Hart. Shawn Michaels certainly did not screw Bret Hart. Nor did Vince McMahon screw Bret Hart. I truly believe that Bret Hart screwed Bret Hart. And he can look in the mirror and know that. I'm sure in some parts of the country right now, there's a collective groan that you're not accepting responsibility, that you orchestrated the situation. And the fact that uh, there, people are not going to understand what you mean by Bret Hart screwed Bret Hart. So what do you mean by that? Well, I will certainly take responsibility for any decision I've ever made. I've never had a problem doing that. Not that all of my decisions are accurate. They're not. But when I make a bad decision, I'm not above saying I'm sorry and trying to do the best uh, about it that I can. Hopefully the batting average is, is pretty good. I make more good decisions than I do bad decisions. And as far as screwing Bret Hart is concerned, there's a time-honored tradition in the wrestling business that when someone is leaving, that they show the right amount of respect to the WWF superstars in this case who helped make you that superstar. You show the proper respect to the organization that helped you become who you are today. It's a time-honored tradition, and Bret Hart didn't want to honor that tradition. And that's something I would have never, ever expected from Bret, because he is known somewhat as a traditionalist in this business. It would have never crossed my mind that Bret would not have wanted to show the right amount of respect to the superstars who, make the, who helped make him, and the organization who helped make him what he is today. Nonetheless, that was Brett's decision. Brett screwed Brett. Some folks along the internet know that in 1996, Brett signed a 20-year contract with the WWF. Then I'm sure there are some at home now. Some folks are saying, well, how could Brett Hart be? Uh, he's got 18 years left on the contract. How can he leave? Did Brett Hart ask you to leave the WWF? Or did you ask him to leave the WWF? This was a joint decision, and it, and it vacillated somewhat as well when we were making the decision. It was a joint decision from both Brett and me. And ultimately what happened was that the two of us got together and orchestrated the opportunity for Ted Turner's wrestling organization to, quote, steal Brett. I felt that from bu for business reasons, if Bret Hart and the salary we were paying him was not justified. And Bret felt that for, for creative reasons, and in fact that he had become sort of second banana in his own mind to Shawn Michaels, who had, quote, stolen his spot. So for financial reasons on my part and creative reasons on Bret Hart's part, the two of us got together and decided, okay, let's do the very best we can for you, Bret. So the two of us orchestrated Bret Hart receiving a three-year deal 
in which he is paid $3 million a year, which I believe is the richest deal in all of professional wrestling. And that's working 125 days a year. So I felt from a personal standpoint that if Brett wasn't a great investment any longer for the WWF, although I really didn't want him to go, but nonetheless, that the least I could do for Brett is to help him help himself. And I told Brett, Brett, if in fact you do get this deal from Turner, I'm going to be the very first person personally to congratulate you. And I was. From a business standpoint, I didn't really want to lose Brett. He wasn't paying off from a financial standpoint, but nonetheless, I really didn't want to lose Brett. The roar after Survivor Series emanates from Ottawa, so we can safely expect a feisty one. It begins with Rick Rude and a chorus of bullshit chants welcoming DX to complete the new entrance video and music. To everyone chanting, we want Brett, HBK tells us that he's now run his ass down south with the rest of those dinosaurs, but his friends from down there are going to beat the hell out of him. He makes a fleeting reference to Brett, quote, beating up a 52-year-old man, and then Shamrock interrupts. Sean gave him a wrestling lesson last week, so surely he can't possibly want any more of HBK. Ken calls them a disgrace to the human race and dresses down the entire group who doesn't do a very good job of it. As the segment starts to die, Sergeant Slobber appears. He puts Triple H in a match with Sherrock tonight, and the DX will be barred from ringside. After 20 minutes, we finally get a match, and it's Mero against Ahmed. Mero blocks the pill with a plunge with a low blow, and this time the ref sees it for a DQ. Taka takes on Devon Storm in the light heavyweight tournament. Storm gets the shot so impressive offence, but eventually gets pinned after a Michinoku driver. JR talks to the bizarrely attired Goldust, who has an I'm first written on the back of his head. He again tells that he's glad to be free from the shackles of marriage to Marlena. Vader marches down to ringside and berates Goldust for walking out in his tag last night. He punishes Dustin for it in the shape of a powerbomb. We briefly go backstage after what appears to be an attack on Blackjack Wyndham. We don't yet know the assailants. Headbangers vs Recon and Sniper is next. The Bangers win with a double powerbomb and the DOA rock with the commission. Austin is here to open the second hour. He's the toughest SOB in the WWF and no, can't nobody stop him. The Nation try their luck on that score in the shape of Rocky Maivia. Your, your bottom line will read has been compliments of The Rock. Austin, of course, is happy to accept any challenge. Rocky sucks because Stone Cold says so. Los Bariquas jumped Steve Blackman during an interview with JR, but he managed to see them off with kicks, kicks and more kicks. In something called a bunkhouse battle, Road Dogg and Billy Gunn, who are identified as Wyndham's attackers, face Blackjack Bradshaw, the tag team with it, a DDT, onto the chair and a dogpile pin. We hear from Jarrett in a sit-down interview with JR again. He thinks the WWF got him at a bargain price and his goal is to be the greatest and most respected WWF champion of all time. He wants to beat Brett and he also thinks Sean will win at Survivor Series. He then, yes, this interview should have aired last week. He then plays a bit of word association, some examples, Eric Bischoff, right place, right time, right wallet. Shawn Michaels, phenomenal athlete. Triple H, tag along. Cole gets the talk tough guy contest fighter Butterbean, but Mero puts a stop to it because he's a real boxer. Butterbean has only beaten truck drivers and unemployed steel workers. Mero can knock him out in four rounds or less, marking him fewer. Bean is perplexed by the whole thing. 
Undertaker against Karma is next. Dead Man is in control until the lights go out. Bear and Kane are here. Kane wants Taker to suffer for the sin he's committed. Undertaker must face him one on one so Kane can prove he's superior. Taker responds and tells Kane that Bear has poison in his mind. Don't come to me as my enemy, come to me as my brother. I will never fight you. Sharon and Triple H show main event. We get big, we want Brett chance during this one. Hunter nails the referee, but Slaughter stops Rude and China interfering. HBK though sleeks in and hits Ken with a Shamrock, uh, hits Ken with the briefcase. Show goes off the air before the match ends. We open up the 17th with footage of what happened when Raw went off the air last week. Slaughter prevents DX from interfering, then shoves Michaels down, allowing Sharrock to get a three count. Yes, Sharrock was in a match with versus Hunter Helmsley. The show proper begins with Austin on the mic, and he's in a foul mood. He invites Rocky Maivia out here for a fight. The entire nation respond, and they stare him down from the ramp. The Rock then leaves, and Farouk, Karma, and Dilo come down to the ring to surround Stone Cold. While Austin is tied up with, my, with them, Maivia sprints the ringside and steals the IC belt. He makes off with it, and Stone Cold responds with the double bird. Mayor against King is our first match of the night. Butterbean is in the front row for this one, and once more, Mark tries to draw with him. Lawler actually has it won with a pile drive, but Sable gingerly crawls in and pulls him for the DQ. She and her black eye get berated for her trouble. We now get, of all things, a sit-down interview conducted by Jim Ross with Vincent Mann and that black eye. It takes place in front of a backdrop of Bret Hart and his prime, so you know what we're talking about here. Some would say I screwed Bret Hart, but I truly believe Bret Hart screwed Bret Hart. Vince is somebody who takes responsibility for all of his actions, good or bad. When a wrestler leaves the company, there is a, quote, time-honoured tradition of showing respect, and Bret did not wish to honour that. Hart's leaving was a joint decision for financial reasons on Vince's part and the creative ones on Brett's. The least I could do for Brett was to help him help himself. Vince was disappointed when Brett hit him. Even at 52 years old, perhaps things would have been different had there been a confrontation. I let him hit me. Brett being pinned and shaking Sean's hand would have been the way to go out as a true champion, but he made a very selfish decision that he will have to live with for the rest of his life. As it is, Vince has no sympathy for Brett at all, and that's only part one. How do you follow that? Well, with Los Bariquas against Road Dog and Billy Gunn, it ends with, it, with DQ very quickly. Sonny is a guest referee for Max Midi, Nova and Taurus against El Cerrito, Octagon and Battalion until the lights go out. You know what that means. The minis hide behind the announce table, the headbangers appear and break a boombox over Kane's head, but of course it's to no avail. DX are here for the usual top of the hour address. Now that HBK has run off the hearts, he's now going to beat up their friends, starting with Shamrock. They will square off for the tile in your house next month. Triple H then calls out Slaughter, who obliges. He tells him that DX will run the wrestling world. After enduring some unfunny jokes about his wife, Sarge deservedly slaps him. The rest of the cronies do, though, beat up the commissioner to a pulp and cover his prone body in toilet roll before shuffling off. Scott Taylor vs. Eric Shelley's our lightweight heavyweight tournament action for the night. As this goes on, Jeff Jarrett joins us on the phone. He'll make his in-ring debut next week. That's actually quite good. Taylor wins with a top-rope DDT. Mara is back and he calls JR into the ring for an interview. Sable is his property and she's being stalked by Butterbean and he wants to kick his butt right now. Bean gets in the ring and shoves him down. JR says they will fight it in your house. Here's Vince again. He would allow Brett back into the WWF one day but only if Hart apologises. Another condition would be no more free shots. 
Vince is proud of that. He helped Brett sell out. He thinks Brett loses credibility every time he says he didn't leave the WWF for money. Vince regrets a lot from a personal standpoint, but stands by the decision he made. Brett will regret the decision he made. Their relationship ended because Brett forgot that he is in sports entertainment business. He could have lived up to be the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be. But in his last match, he failed. Vader is set to take on Goldust, but Dustin has his arm in a sling. He isn't medically cleared to wrestle, but he's able to whack the Macedon over the head with a foreign object before scarpering. Slaughter's back out tonight. Triple H crossed the line, so on September the 7th, he's ordering Halsey to get in the ring with him. Rocky Maivere and Dude Lowe is our final match of the night. The nation quickly hit the ring for the DQ. Austin shows up and gives them all a kicking, but Rocky again manages to slide away with the IC title. The final roar of the month opens with Fayetteville, North Carolina, with DX introduced by Handsome Harvey. Harvey Whippleman. He runs through Rick Rude's stick and then gets rewarded by HBK shoving him to the mat. Sean quickly gets serious and tells him that he hasn't had a lot of sleep recently. He has been tormented by the controversy of Survivor Series, but tonight it will all come to an end. Away from the sight of McMahon, the internet and the quote underground dirt sheet writers, he's organised a face-to-face meeting with Bret Hart. Regardless of whether it ends with a handshake or a fight, it will happen tonight. See about that. The LOD defend their tag titles against Dog and Gun after a ref bump Dog Larrups Animal with a chair allowing Billy Gunn to secure a roll up for the new official three count. The new champions hightail it out of the building into a car with the engine running and it nearly hits an oncoming limo. The same limo which they get some shots of. Cornette says there can't be anyone else in that car but Bret Hart. Goldness is helped to the ring in a wheelchair. He tells us now that he's not now not just an invalid but a quadriplegic. He then asks, quote, nurse good body to run some alcohol, rub some alcohol on his shoulders, but he won't be sued for long as here comes Vader. The nurse throws the alcohol in Vader's eyes and reveals herself to be none other than Luna Vachon. Dustin makes a dramatic recovery and beats the hell out of the Mastodon. Goldust and Luna are now a couple. To the sound of stars and stripes forever, here comes Slaughter. Triple H got personal last week and in two weeks time he will be punished. On December the 7th, their contest will be held on the Slaughter Rules, a boot camp match. And that's an order. In the light heavyweight tournament, pits Brian Pillman against USWA's Flanagan. Jerry, Jerry's kid takes it with a top rope leg drop and now being called the Tennessee Jam. As we reach the top of the second hour, the dramatic confrontation is about to begin. First, we thought we had to put up with Halsey rabbiting about his purple helmet. Thankfully, he doesn't last long as HBK gives us what he's all been waiting for. Ladies and gentlemen, Brett the Hitman Hart. The familiar music strikes up, and here comes a midget wearing a mask. After a sure-fired set of jokes from Triple H, Michaels, Michaels, I hope not, Michaels recreates the Survivor Series by putting Brett in the sharpshooter. This time Hart himself says, ring the bell, then they slap a WCW sign on his ass and send him out of the arena. Degeneration X Globe, they're interrupted by Jim Neidhart. I am the Hart Foundation, so I will come down there and kick your butt. Michaels, though, has a proposition for him. The Anvil had everything that Bret Hart never had, so Sean is going to offer him an opportunity, a job. He has until 11pm to give his answer. Shamrock is up against Savio Vega. Ken gets in the zone and wins decisively with the ankle lock. The Nature are in the ring. Rocky calls himself the greatest intercontinental champion ever. The text, Rocky sucks, actually appears on the screen and the lights start to flicker. On the troll, we see the Austin's in the control truck. When you look down at your beeper and see the 316, you know you're going to get your ass whipped. 
Rocky, is it live or is it Memorex? Austin answers his own question by showing up behind Rocky. Maivia looks down at his beeper and then sure enough the outswipping commences. Once more though, the rock scarpers with the icy title in hand. Cross is due to be Jeff Jarrett's first opponent, but Jarrett isn't happy with his contract. He was promised luxury locker rooms and meals, but Vince hasn't delivered. As such, he refuses to wrestle change tonight, so Crush wins by forfeit. Jarrett immediately becomes the biggest babyface in the promotion. Crush is rewarded to be Kane's victim of the week. After, Triple o, after HBK officially announces the Anvil's DX's latest member, he takes on Vader in the main event. Helmsley throws coffee at Vader and then Michaels beats the big guy with two super kicks. Neidhart celebrates with his new teammates, but they then viciously attack him. Degeneration X rules the wrestling world. As a storyteller, uh, I would have hoped that Brett's story uh, would be a dramatic one. I would hope that that Brett's story would be one that would give him dignity, that would give him the poise to state that I was maybe the greatest WWF superstar ever in terms of his departure. And one way of being able to give back to the company, being able to give back to those individuals, those superstars who helped you achieve the level of success that you have, when you know that you're leaving in a time-honored tradition might have been, for argument's sake, that after the most grueling match that Brett ever had in his life, that Brett was pinned. But in that small moment of defeat, Brett would have stood straight up and shown the whole world what a true champion, both as a human being and a wrestling persona, he really is. And if I had been Brett, if I were writing the story, I can see Brett after a one, two, three, simply saying, okay, to his opponent, you got the best of me. I want to congratulate you. I want to stick my hand out and congratulate you. And furthermore, I want everyone in the whole locker room to watch my match so that I can show for those who follow in my footsteps the way in a time-honored tradition this is to be done, to show every individual, every secretary, everyone in Titan Sports, the World Wrestling Federation, who counts on me to do the right thing, that I was there, that I was a superstar, maybe the greatest of ever, and I went out the way a true champion would go out. All right, so as we start the fourth hour of the show, um, yeah, there's loads more potentially to discuss, but as I said to the lads off there, I've ordered a pizza for 90 minutes time, so, you know, we are now a little bit against the clock, but there we are, it will be, this show is going to end in about an hour and 15 minutes, if not before. Um, we have three TVs to go through, for once I just piled all the views into one big long reader, um, because it was just easy like that, as I say, you know, there's there's a lot going on, but it's broad stroke for you to discuss. I think there are two things that we need to discuss from the television, and so they've dotted about the weeks. Uh, Rory, starting on week number two, the promo that we've we, we, we've heard bits and pieces of, because the promo, the interview we've heard bits and pieces of, there was a, a lot of it. Uh, Vincent Mann sit down with Jim Ross on the third Raw of the month, the second Raw following the pay-per-view. Um, basically, you know, I, I thought about as open and as honest 
as you could possibly expect him to be. As in, it was it was it was honestly filtered through Vincent Mann's own layer of bullshit, which is fine. Um, but I thought, with that in mind, it's very interesting to see some of Vince's comments and how open he was about some of the things involved, more open than he perhaps could or should have been. Uh, broadly, I agree. Although it's worth bearing in mind, if you sit down and watch the whole interview piece, which took up about 20 minutes of TV time, at no point does he actually say what happened. He talks about the time-honoured tradition. He doesn't explain what it is. Okay, you don't really need to. We know what he means by time-honoured tradition. Okay, I get that. Uh, the very first question that Jim Ross asked him is, did you screw Bret Hart? At no point is it actually said, or even words to the effect of, oh, I changed the finish of the match on the fly and call for the bell, or anything remotely like that. He doesn't actually say what he did. So to really get the most out of these interviews, you still really need to know what went on. And I would wager that a lot of the people still tuning into the USA Network that, that day probably didn't know. Because don't forget, the week before the Raw after, um, uh, the Raw after Survivor Series, Michaels opened the show with a pretty rubbishy promo, it must be said, in which he said, making it WWF canon, that he made Brett the Hitman Hart submit to his own move, which I think is the promo he would have give, given if Brett had eventually played ball. Anyway, that said, this was fascinating. Vince McMahon, the owner of the company, as the owner of the company, talking about all sorts of inside stuff, talking about his own position at organising contracts. Um, what he thinks the ideal finish should have been for Brett to ride off in the sunset. Quote, being pinned and shaking Sean's hand. Talking about all sorts of things like that. What, what, what else? Because so many I can think of that is the most fascinating thing that he would allow Brett back into the WWF, but only if Brett apologises. I thought, yeah, okay. That's the real Vince coming out now. Yeah. Um, I very much recommend anybody, if you didn't see that edition of Raw, to seek these out. If only because it was WWF pulling the curtain back. But it wasn't just, as to use a phrase we've used a lot over the last 18 months or so, talking about uh, the big two organisations shooting for the sake of shooting. I do think they needed to do something on television here. And Vince McMahon explaining things as Vince McMahon was the right way to go. But I still think as far back he did pull back the curtain, which as a quote-unquote smart fan, I did appreciate he still just kept a little bit in reserve. And I wonder why. Eric, opening up the interview with Jim Ross saying, did Bret Hart screw Bret Hart? It was an odd angle to start at. And I think one that very clearly showed Vince had a very, very clear direction of where he wanted this conversation to go. This was not... Um, this was not an interview to present a, a fair and balanced perspective of what happened at the Survivor Series. This was not an interview designed to be open and transparent with the general viewing audience, not just the smarks like us who talk about wrestling on the weekends. Um, th this was coded in language that, we, that I'm assuming the majority of the audience couldn't understand or didn't fully understand. Back to the main point, though. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This was not anything but uh, 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 what they probably imagined was a well-crafted smear campaign against Bret Hart that made Vince McMahon seem like this genuine but, uh, I don't know, genuine but honest businessman who tried to do business and all this coded... 
the, the tone of this was just wrong. I don't know why they would even do it. it. I don't know whether Vince McMahon just doesn't have an honest opinion of himself and how he came off in this interview. I don't know if the people, why the people around him wouldn't say, Vince, this looks terrible. You look like a goddamn sociopath. Everybody, everybody who's in the know knows what happened or has an opinion of it. And everybody who's not in the know probably thinks this is all just a work and Brett's going to come back and have a program with Sean. I don't know who this caters towards. And I think all it does is confuse the, the lay audience and more and further engenders the audience in the know to take Brett's side. Yeah. Um, as I say, fascinating is the word I'd use. You know, not, you know, not particularly, not necessarily to say it was a particularly honest or even necessarily massively revealing segment or, or, or pair of interviews, if you like. Um, but it's just interesting to see that was the direction they thought was was best because Roy is the there is what one thing that a lot of people seem to have kind of overlooked in the last few weeks. They talked about Bret Hart a hell of a lot after that pay per view. Like, he was the main story. And it's why, when we come to what we come to in a bit, when Sean says, on the, on the final Raw of the Month, Brett's going to be here tonight, it's like, you know, I know he's not, but it's like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. It's all you've been talking about for the last two weeks. I suppose, Roy, the idea, they would say, well, the story was unavoidable. Um, but they were, you know, the, the Raws of the last few weeks have been great if you're building to Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels in January. Um, or even if you're building to, you know, Bret Hart having a fight with Vincent Mann or something. Um, but that would be another thing noteworthy amongst anything else, is that they moved on in a sense. The, there was a very clear change of direction. They pivoted very quickly on the first Raw of the Month. There's a horrendous promo in the, in the opening segment following Survivor Series regarding we had Slaughter out and Shawn Michaels dicking about and Ken Shamrock comes out and they ask him to talk and Shamrock's not a great talker. But they moved up Michaels onto Shamrock, Austin onto Rocky, Triple H onto fucking Sergeant Slaughter and that fucking <laughs> promo later in the month that I, I won't subject you to in, 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 into the, uh, the end of the fourth hour of this show. They clearly, <laughs> they clearly moved on. And yet, this big story throughout the rest of the month was Bret Hart, Bret Hart, Bret Hart. That's all they were talking about. That's all they were speaking about. Rory, I, I guess the argument's going to be it was completely unavoidable, but I kind of feel like there was a way of not avoiding it that was would have been far more productive than this. Agreed completely. I think I'm right to say the last thing Vince said in the sit-down interview was uh, Bret could have been the best there is, the best there was, and the best there ever will be, but in his last match, he failed. End it there. Don't mention Bret Hart again. Just don't draw attention to it. Yeah, well, I, I, th- I think that's that's perhaps the, the, the trade-off is mention it in a sandbox type thing, deal with it in one like fifteen-minute sit-down interview, and never mention it again. Exactly. I think that's that. What would perhaps be the right way of doing it? Vince deals with it at JR, move Michaels on to Shamrock, and that's it. I think that's the that's the kind of right way to play it. Show the respect to the people that are in the know. We're not going to completely ignore it, but move on because you're not making any more money out of this now. Like Brett's not coming back. Exactly. What do they have to gain, for example, by having Jerry Lawler on commentary talking about the money that Brett's going to earn in WCW? How does that help them in any way? 
and if you just say, oh yes, he's got the WCW now, aren't Brett fans just going to, in their droves, just tune into Turner? They probably will. So they just, it's as if they've realised that they've got something mythical on their hands, a well they can keep going back to time and time and time again, Brett screw Brett. Yeah, but doing it now at the expense of their own programming, their own programming, which, guess what, guys, doesn't involve Bret Hart anymore. You cannot keep bringing this up. You've, Vince, you've got rid of him for whatever reasons. Now go ahead and show me what you've got without him. Don't bring Bret Hart every single, every single segment, every si- I think every single match, the commentators would go off and want to talk about what Bret was doing. Oh, is Bret Hart watching this? And I'm like, what are you trying to gain by that? Vince, you've already got what you want out of this deal. You've 20 minutes of interview time sat down with Jim Ross, you know, twirling your moustache, Machiavellian style. You don't need to keep on doing it. We get it. Yes, you've got Bret Hart out of the company. Well done. Stop mentioning it. Eric, any, any more thoughts on that? It's just telling about the WWF and the way they write their television and their storylines that Bret Hart was far more relevant on television between the Survivor Series and the end of November than he ever was between SummerSlam when he won the belt and the Survivor Series itself. Well, you could probably go back a lot further than that as well. <laughs> like, yeah. But yes, you're broadly, yes, you're right. Um, let's move on to the final TV of the month for, I think, the, the other... The other, see, I said there's a fair bit going on this month, but as as you'll understand, as we're probably about three and a half hours into the show now, um, I can't cover everything. Um, the final team of the month is interesting, though. Uh, it was, you know, it was the 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 other live show because the one the third show of the month was pre-taped, and also you get that really wonky situation where Rick Rude's on Bud's shows and all that kind of thing on, on, on Raw on Nitro. So they opened up the Nitro and Raw the following week and said that Harvey Whippleman is Rick Rude. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, I... I mean, I, I, I... You know, they dealt with it quickly enough. I thought they were going to have this big, long, like, drag-out 15-minute segment. Um, at least Whippleman introduces um, the DX and DX just, you know, deal with him quickly, I suppose. Handsome Harvey, Bob. Come on, get it right now. Handsome Harvey, I'm sorry. Has, yeah, exactly. has, he, shrunk, has he shrunk in the wash? Um, <laughs> and, 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 and yeah, so, so, they, so they do that, and the Michael is like, Bret Hart's here tonight, and you're like, where are they going with this? And so, you know, we, we, we come back middle of the show. Obviously, it's the, it's the, the start of the, uh, the 10 o'clock hour, i.e., in theory, when Nitro's going off the air, although it was up against uh, Hogan and Giant, I think, and, and Nitro hasn't got off the air at 10 o'clock in about five months. Um, but, yeah, they, they, they said, I'm, I'm going to bring out Bret Hart, and also they, they bring out the mini version of Bret Hart, and it's like, yeah, I can't actually mind that. It's one of those things, like, you know, it doesn't build heat on Michaels. It's like, it, people are just like, oh, Oh, fucking hell, or it builds heat on the company. It's not particularly productive. Um, the, the, I think the, the discussion bit isn't really, any, the, the, the bit worthy discussion isn't really any of that. It's the the segment involving Neidhart. I'll play it in now, and then we'll, we'll, have, a, we'll have a quick check about that. Where is Brett? He's at home. He's at home, Jim. And let me ask you, where is Davy Boy, Jim? Davey Boy is having some very minor knee surgery. Oh, it's okay. So Dave, Brett's at home, and Davey's having 
some of that minor knee surgery that's been going around lately. The old phony knee injury. I know that one well, Jim. Okay. Let me ask you then, where is Owen? Where is Owen Hart, Jim? I'll tell you where Owen is. Owen is at home so mentally distraught about his brother being screwed at the survival series. Oh, okay. Oh, oh, okay, Jim. Okay, let me get this right. So, Brett's at home. Davey's having that minor knee surgery stuff. Owen is now um, mentally distraught. And Jim the Anvil Nightheart is standing alone by himself. Anvil, what I want to talk about is why are you here, Jim? Why are you here? I'll tell you why you're here, Jim. Because you have a wife and you have a family to feed. And you're here looking for opportunity. Well, Hart, Jim the Anvil Nightheart, Shawn Michaels is going to give you that opportunity. He's going to give you that opportunity that Bret Hart gave you. A chance, an opportunity to be a part of the most elite team in wrestling history, Degeneration X. Jim, for one night only, one chance, one offer, tonight at 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, this offer will be taken what off the table. Jim, you Making have a chance offer. to be a part of something and matter to someone. At 11 p.m., Jim, Degeneration X anxiously awaits your answer. The reason why the Nightheart thing, I, I think, was interesting is because we talk about, you know, what WWF can, can gain out of this whole situation moving forward. And to me, as I say, and as I kind of got quite passionate and I raised about earlier, to me, the, you know, if Bret Hart likes his family as much as he does, he should have just gone on with the, the angle that Neidhart put together and then worked out exactly how much he could have got over Owen, Bulldog and Neidhart in the, the four weeks before he left. But to me, uh, that being put aside, the the big thing, or the interesting thing from the WS point of view is what they do with, with certainly with Neidhart. As we know, Neidhart's not under contract. I, I, I really do like that. You're not under the contract, but we don't think WCW are going to sign you. It's like that's that's how little we think of you. Um, but the Owen Hart and the British Bulldog are both under long-term contracts, and what they're going to do with them now? Apparently, Bulldog does have a knee injury, um, so he's off permanently. And I think Owen Hart returned to house shows but hasn't been back on TV since, as far as I understand it. I think the perhaps the most interesting thing over the next few weeks, over the next few months, is what they do, what they follow up with regarding the rest of the Hart Foundation going forward. And I think it's pretty clear to see that the answer is going to be not that much. Because they sent Neidhart out there on the ramp. Neidhart is not a good promo. Neidhart didn't talk in the heart. In a group that couldn't talk, Neidhart did not talk. Like the <laughs> others tried. Neidhart was mute. So they sent Neidhart out there, and it was one of his better efforts, I must admit. But they kind of sent him out there, you know, Sean's like, where's Owen? He's like, oh, he's, you know, he's kind of sulking at home. Bulldog's nursing a knee injury, like making all like pussies. Do you want to join DX? Oh, the fuck would he want to join DX? Yeah, I'll think about it. Gets to the main event. So they do the thing with uh, Michael's invader, and Neidhart gets involved, and briefly it looks like he's going to align himself with DX, and then they turn on him. And Neidhart looks like a complete dick, and the idea was, as well, if he fucks off, then at least we've buried him on the way out. Um, and, and, and Eric, this is, this is 
where I get to, you know, this is Vince McMahon kind of cutting his nose to spite his face, as in, to me, like, kick out Bret Hart if you want. There's a hell of a lot of reasons to do it. Like, as I say, I, I, don't, I don't disagree with the idea that Bret Hart probably wasn't worth what they were paying him necessarily. Um, more relative to Bret Hart probably paid for himself, but he was earning far more than other guys that were more valuable to the WWF were. But to me, it's like, okay, push Brett out the door, but let's maximise every other possible avenue you've got. Admittedly, Jim Neidhart is not the guy to maximise. But I'd have been I'd have been on the phone to Owen Hart and the British Bulldog you know, the next couple of days, and I would have said, this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to capitalise on this and make you better off. Eric, I haven't heard anything to that one way or another, but I'm, I, I'm looking at this segment and going, this man is not planning on capitalising on this to Owen Hart and the British Bulldog, is my impression. No, this is where you, this is where you're seeing ugly Vince, I think, and and vindictive Vince, right? Exactly, um, and you know the thing is, we can we can criticize Vince all we want, whatever. I'm not going to defend him more than normal, but um, this is the wrestling business where there are almost no good dudes, except for ironically Owen Hart, and and from all intents and purposes McFoley, um, and so. Let's not forget here that Vince obviously has no plans to capitalize on this Heart Heart Foundation angle. He hasn't backed up the Brinks truck to Owen and Davey yet. He hasn't had them back on television. Uh, Davey's got a knee injury, but you know Owen's not there. And what we do have is Jim the Anvil Neidhart. Let's not forget agreeing to come in and basically look like a chump uh, to DX. This is clearly a further effort to bury the heart, the remnants of the Heart Foundation and put an end to this 1997 uh, version of that stable. Owen and Davey aren't around. Neidhart says Davey's out with an injury and Owen's at home sulking. That, Like you said, Bob, that certainly doesn't put either of those guys over as tough guys. Um, and, and then you have DX doing what everybody except for Jim the Anvil Neidhart saw coming, which was clowning Jim the Anvil Neidhart. Um, yeah, this is just it's 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 getting ugly before it gets beautiful. Rory, it won't be getting beautiful anytime soon. Yeah, no. sending sending Jim the Emerald Nightheart out to do a promo. Yeah, I mean, if that sentence doesn't say it all, then nothing else will. I thought he had already cut the worst promo of this or any other year on the free for all before Canadian Stampede, where he only had about fifteen words and he managed to screw them up by saying, We're gonna get hungry and we're gonna forget our manners. Ha 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 whatever that means. And now here he is on the mic alone for five minutes telling us the entire Hart family story of where they've been for all of November. Yeah, wrong person, wrong time, wrong message, wrong everything. And it was all about burying the hearts. They should have sent out Davy Boy's wife. Well, you're not a great the best promo, promo in the family, right? Yes, yes, yes. That's very true, actually. Very, Don't very true. yourself, Diana. Ah, good. You, well, you well, know well, what? We... That would have been... There's a fascinating parallel universe where none of the blokes turn up. They just send out Diana Smith and just say, you're going to do an in exchange with Shawn Michaels. That could have been excellent television. Yeah, well, we already, we already had a bit of a, a, re, a revisit of the Shawn and Diana thing at one night only, and that was hard enough stomach as it was even before now knowing everything else that's gone on didn't want to repeat at that yeah Owen and Bulldog were just buried on here so Bulldog's got a knee injury oh what a shame and Owen is at home I think I can't remember I think Abel even said he was sulking or something like that didn't exactly put Owen Hart over 
and I'm thinking. But did he, he say something like he, he's he's mentally coming to terms with what happened yeah. or yeah, something, something that's like right, that? Something like that. I mean, yeah, I'm totally wow. Yeah. I really can't that's wait right. to see Owen come that's back. That's it. That's it. I can't wait to see Owen come back now. I mean, Owen and Bulldog have recently have signed four-year contracts. Now, it might very well be that neither of them particularly want to stick around. I can't say after everything that's gone on, I would necessarily blame them if they did want to cut and run. But as far as we know, and reading all the sheets up to the end of the month, they um, they can't cut and run yet. They, they're locked in for four more years. So if they're going to be doing something, there's no way they're going to be able to sit out their contracts for that long. So they've got to play some on-screen role. So making them look like absolute pussies, and the person who's telling them that is somebody who's been aligned with them all year, is just completely counterproductive. And again, you would think Vince McMahon would be aware of this, and yet as soon as I say that sentence, I turn around to myself and say, yeah, of course Vince McMahon knows this. That's the point. I don't know. It's, uh... Yeah, sometimes, uh, the the thing I always say about Vince McMahon, sometimes I think he'd rather be right more than he'd like to earn money. And yep. Vince McMahon really likes to make money. Um, but I think he likes being right a little bit more. Um, and this is one of those occasions where it's like, do we make a big angle out of this and, 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 and push two of our under-contract stars, or do we just bury them and fuck it, just for the hell of it? Um, you know... This this whole thing was designed as a, you know, just as a big angle, a big letdown because, you know, Brett's gone and we're going to bury the rest and then we're going to carry on. It's like, fine. You know, this man's the guy who's earned a lot of money that could perhaps earn a lot more if he'd have, you know, had a bit of, learned to check his pride at the door sometimes, you, you kind of feel. Um, and yeah, it was uh, the stuff with the mini Bret Hart thing. I said, I didn't mind it. You know, Bret Hart was never actually coming out, so it was fine. Um, but yeah, like, as I say, to me, this is, this whole thing seems like one big missed opportunity from, from Brett turning down this really, really obvious finish, um, <clears throat> to even then, to Vincent Mann got going, you know, if I, like, this is what I mean, right? If Vincent Mann is as vindictive as I say he, I say he is, I'd have pushed Brett out the door and then got Owen over as twice the star Brett ever was. Oh, and, and yeah. you know, well, I'm yes, trying. You, you know what I mean? It. Like, 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 isn't isn't that the goal here? The way of punishing Brett is to show him that you know, I, I can put you know, you you were not the star because of your own ability. You were a star because my machine made you a star, and I'm going to prove that by taking your brother, a guy you like a lot but objectively isn't as good as you, and I'm going to make him a bigger star than you ever were. Isn't that isn't that the way of you know? But but that's the thing. Vince McMahon would rather just you know kick a guy while he's down rather than play the long game. I don't know. Um, but yes, this this was a this was an illustrative set of segments. <laughs> you know, I mean, Jim Jim Neidhart who's desperate for a job. Um, I mean, if if if, if WCW had Virgil under contract for like two years now, purely just as a, just as a two fingers up at Vince McMahon, they call him Vincent, right? Jim Neidhart isn't at that level. Jim Neidhart isn't at a level where WCW will even just pay him money just not to be in the WWF. That's where he's at. And they're like, yeah, we know it. We're going to bury the guy anyway. I don't know. It's, you know, Vincent Bowser's a fascinating character. You've got to be at that level, right? You've got to be a complete lunatic to make all these, to make that plane stay in the air, right? He's the Um, boss of the wrestlers. Like, he has to be insane. Yes. Yes. He, 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 uh, 
He really, really does. And that will take us out of 1997, I think, um, into into 2017. Um, like, to be honest, like I was going to apply a retrospective discussion. I don't think my opinions in or out of 20 years ago, but really all that different. Like, like I, I looked at all this, and I'm like, this is how I read it. And I, I don't think that's me trying to read it in a mode of 20 years ago. I just think that's me reading it. Um, but Rory, you have prepared a, a, a third reader, um, because one thing I wanted to do was, uh, well, this is kind of when I was playing the shows, I thought, well, we'll have to cover it in, quote, timeline. Let's... Let's make sure we can translate what's happened since. So, so read through the the aftermath doc, if you like the you know the uh, the screw job revisited, if you like. Twenty years on, talk us through that. Yes, indeed. The biggest news to emerge after what we now know as the Montreal screw job was also the least surprising. On an episode of WWE Confidential in 2002, an episode which focused on the events of November 1997, interviewee Shawn Michaels said. I knew, I knew, and I was told no matter what, deny it. This explains Michael's lying to Hart's face about his awareness of what happened. Lies you will see captured on the Wrestling With Shadows film, which I highly recommend checking out if you haven't. Also on Confidential, Earl Hebner also confirmed his own knowledge of McMahon's plans, although he stated that he only found out shortly before the main event was about to begin, which contradicts a couple of the stories we've seen. In Michael's heartbreaking triumph autobiography in 2005 and his DVD of the same name in 2007, he expanded on how the events unfolded. A telephone conversation between McMahon and Michaels took place probably on the Friday night, in which Michaels reports that whilst McMahon made it clear he wanted to screw Brett, McMahon actually stopped short of outright saying so. But in Michael's own words, I'll do whatever you want. During a lull in the discussion, Paul Levesque, Triple H, grabbed the telephone and told McMahon, Fuck I, it. I heard him use the N-word in the locker room. I bet that's what he said. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to pay it off somehow, haven't you? Yeah. But what's Listen, uh, you've got to put me over Brett's Survivor Series. Yeah, I bet that was mentioned as well. What we know he said was, fuck him. If he won't do business, you go out there and do business for him. So yes. Helmsley screwed Brett. And far from burying that fateful day, the WWF slash WWE have regularly made great play of it since as part of planned storylines. As we will come to this time next year on our podcast, the main event of Survivor Series 1998 saw The Rock defeat Mankind via a sharpshooter when McMahon called for the bell. At a Saturday night's main event taping in March 2006, Shane McMahon would beat Michaels in the same manner. There are probably 100,000 other examples I have forgotten, but I just want to finish with this one. As recently as last year, Payback 2016. The then-heel Charlotte Flair beat Natalia with her figure-eight hold without a tap-out. And who was in Natalia's corner for that match? Bret Hart. Never forget. God bless the wrestling yeah. business. <laughs> uh, um... Eric, you know, back in 2017, I mean, as I say, maybe maybe it's just me, but like, in some ways, nothing's changed. But that's the fascinating thing about this story. One, it's it's you know, testament to particularly Dave Meltzer, but certainly Wade Keller too, is that 
they got this story, like, they got a ridiculously complex story, pretty much bang on the money within two or three days of it happening. Like, that's probably the most, uh, the most remarkable part of this all, was that such a layered, nuanced, confusing, and completely nonsensical story, they got completely right. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know all that much has changed, I suppose, when you think about that. We've, we've got clarification of Shawn Michaels knowing. I suspect most people at the time knew that as well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just that they've exploited it since, which at the time, you probably would say, Dave Meltzer finished one of his um, uh, observers that month and said, one of the biggest you know, moments in wrestling ever, and no doubt something that will be copied time and time again. Like, in many ways, the, the, the most fascinating part about this is that for such a complex story, it was nothing's changed. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, he's a terrible writer, but he's great at delivering information. Uh, Dave Meltzer and uh, Wade Keller is a much better writer and just as good as delivering information in The Torch. You're absolutely right. Those are, in terms of wrestling history, uh, those are uh, those are classic volumes I- equivalent to, you know, Shakespearean or... or uh, Greek tragedies like these, there it's 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 as uh, as important as wrestling journalism has ever been. You know what what's really sad and what's really interesting and in looking back in this and Bob, you're absolutely right. And Rory, I suspect you agree that looking back at this 20 years later with with all sorts of hindsight and all sorts of uh, reporting and, and knowing pretty much all there is to know. I think there's some details that are still left out, but knowing enough. Um, Everybody comes out looking worse. Uh, Vince McMahon, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels to a degree, mostly because of the way he's handled it since, but um, I guess Shawn Michaels is maybe a neutral. Uh, but Vince and Bret both come out looking equally heelish for various reasons, and we pointed it out. And I think I think if anybody has a firm belief that either Vince or Bret was right and Vince and, or Bret was wrong in this scenario, has inherent bias, and you need to check your bias at the door before you really analyze the situation because both were bad actors in this scenario and essentially each, each left each other with no choice. Um, but what's what's most telling about this incident in hindsight is not the who caused it, but what the effects were. And you look at the WWF and they flourished and they had their best three years ever and this all this information is out there and everybody knows it, but the Montreal Screwjob was a catalyst, one catalyst, not the catalyst, but one catalyst of a boom period in professional wrestling. What it did to Bret Hart and the Hart family and, and everybody affiliated with that, directly or indirectly, and then the tragedies that coincidentally befell the Hart family thereafter between Bulldog and Owen. and Just it's read Bret Hart's book, listen to other shows that have gone in depth on this, and it's just really, really, really fucking sad uh, what Bret Hart and the Hart family's life and Julie Hart and Brett's kids and everybody and Owen and Martha and all those people, everybody you can think of has been affected by this Harry Hart, uh, Harry Smith for crying out loud. Um, while the World Wrestling Federation and Vince McMahon have gone on to nothing but almost un, un, unbridled and uh, uncontested prosperity since. And so it's too bad when you see two bad actors commence in a situation like what happened in Montreal. Neither one was at more fault than the other, but one person, one organization uh, was birthed with amazing success and the other person has dealt with almost nothing but unending tragedy since that time. Roy? Uh, beautifully put. I can't add any more than 
Eric has put on that. So I'm going to take a slightly different angle based on the journalism side, really, but the company side as well. And I'm just going to throw this out as sort of a final question before Bob sums up. I'll throw this out to you guys. Could this... No, not, no, not could this. If something like this ever happened again, how would it be handled knowing what we know now? Because don't forget, there were still very few subscribers to The Observer and The Torch back in November 1997. And I, when I was watching it as a callow 15-year-old at the time who knew the deal about pro wrestling, so to speak, but had no idea what the deal was, I was in the dark about what actually happened for months, probably until I saw Wrestling With Shadows when it was shown on BBC Two here in the UK of all places and around about December 1998. So I, I was in the dark as a wrestling fan and number one WWF guy for well over a year. Would there be, if any, okay, say for example, I don't know, a finish was changed on the fly, Brock Lesnar, AJ Styles, something like that, because Vince thought AJ was getting too big for his boots, as ludicrous as that sounds. How would people, fans, journalists, whisper it, Twitter, could anything like this ever happen again? Well, to take the question in a fractionally different direction, and, and, and again, in a weird kind of way, you know, to, to, to praise Dave Meltzer and Wade Keller, I bet if a similar situation happened in 2017, I bet it'd take us a lot longer to get to the truth. Like, you know, I, I, it, it, you know one, if the story breaks on the Wednesday... Five days is a long fucking time, but that world would have spread a significantly faster. Um, but also just the fact that, one, there probably would have been a lot more interest in the main event. And then, two, it might have taken months to get any kind of clarity over what would have happened just because people would have been, you know, so we bring in modern life and politics into it. Yeah, we talk about you know, misinformation and, and fake news and stuff like that. This An equivalent story with an equivalent level of complexity would have spread like wildfire and would have manipulated and changed it would have been you know people would have been just throwing up nonsense and other people would have been believing it it, it's, it would have been you know again to, to to draw it out a bit Roy I, I kind of got on a completely different tangent of what the question was um, but it would have been like a like a major natural event like if you ever watch how uh, like a, a natural disaster or a, like a major terrorist incident or anything kind of spreads online it's always you know be wary about everything you see reported in the immediate aftermath because most of it is probably wrong and 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 the best time for lies to spread are in that kind of situation i think it would have been very similar like the whole thing would have gone down um the show would have gone off the air. I, the uh, other fascinating things, how the hell they would have dealt with it the next day on TV. Um, but I, I just think, yeah, Roy, to not answer your question, I think it would have <laughs> taken us a hell of a lot longer to get to the truth um, just because of modern society we live in. Perhaps take a better stab at it. Um, where, would, where would AJ Styles have been leaving to? What, what promotion would Vincent Mann have been so scared of that AJ Styles was going to walk away with his title? Oh, God, AJ Styles is going to turn up on Ring of Honor with my title. Eh, go on, let him. I'll just have one world title. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thing, Roy. I don't know whether I, I even answered your question remotely, but that was where no, I went. You know, in, in, a roundabout, in a roundabout way, Bob, you have right at the very end there. 
And this is the whole reason I brought this up. And I've, as you know, I've been talking. Yeah, yeah, go, go on, Eric. I'll come back in. Go on. <laughs> I, go on. I actually want to answer your question directly. Go ahead. Um, Sorry, Roy. I, no, go ahead. Uh, I don't think I don't think this could happen again in the way it did. I think kayfabe is completely dead. Yes. And and to, I think if if this were to happen today, I think there would be a press release on WWE.com about two o'clock that said AJ Styles has been released. The WWE Championship or the Universal Championship will be, uh, you know, addressed later on. I think they would work it in the kayfabe, but I think they would just say fuck that. We're not dealing with it. Kayfabe is dead. Nobody cares. AJ, you don't want to do business. There's the door. Uh, go. Good luck in New Japan getting shooted on half the time. Um, so I don't think this could happen today because I think even though Kayfabe was mostly dead in 2007 or in 1997, um, you, there was enough of it left to where this was actually possible. But I think because this happened and because – the wrestling business is so transparent as a source of entertainment and not a source of reality anymore. There, some, something different than this will happen that will be just as controversial. That's just the law of, of, of wrestling and the law of, of business. But it won't be anything like this because you need a semblance of kayfabe to be alive for something like this to happen. And because the company itself has buried kayfabe in the last 20 years, this could never happen again. And just the fact it's completely different now, as in, like, a Shawn Michaels character, actor, personality would never thrive in, in the WWE in 2017. They'd have never got that far. Like, like anyone, that's, anyone that's saying, yeah, I'm not putting this guy over, you know, I, I know it happens. I'm not oblivious to the fact it would happen, but that's... That kind of character is not doesn't thrive in 2017 WWE. It gets kicked out the door. Or if um, it happens, it's people like Brock and um, and people who who the WWE needs more than than they need the WWE. And there's not many of them. No, there's one. Yeah. <laughs> and as I say, the the, the bigger summation, uh, Roy, I'll give you the last word. But the bigger summation is is that the the big difference between 2017 and 1997 is that. 2017 WWE is the monopoly. Um, in 1997, at this stage in the game, they were number two. Um, and when you have nothing to fear, and when you know, as Eric says, when when the guys, you know, when the guys have nowhere to go, like you know, that's the whole point. Sure, Michael could be a dick in part because you know, like if I can get fired, I can just go to Atlanta and work with my mates, get more money, work less dates, etc., etc. The guy in 2017 who's on Michael's tier money, you know, he leaves and it's like, okay, good luck. And some of them make it work. You know, Cuddy Rhodes, as, yeah, we, we were talking about him during the break. He's made it work. Um, but yeah, the industry is completely different. And the, you know, it's not like, it's not like an incident like this couldn't happen again. It's more the 18 months of the backstory are just almost impossible now in 2017. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think the, the reason I really brought it up is because the Montreal Screwjob is now is now story canon in, in WWE. It's the first thing anybody learns about Bret Hart. Like, if you're just getting into Nirvana, the first thing you learn is that Kurt Cobain killed himself in April 1994. The first thing you now know about Bret Hart is not his five 
titles. It's not the King of the Ring. It's not... <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were going to say he's five moves of doom. I'm like, no, but I don't look at that wrong. <laughs> been, been there, been there. I'll, I'll save that for uh, 99 WCW. So uh, it's, it's, it's none of that stuff. It's not when King of the Ring. It's not his work in Lonesome Dove. <laughs> it's the fact that, oh, he was the guy who was screwed in Montreal in November 1997. And that's the story. And everybody knows it. Yet today's modern day breed of wrestling fan, they don't have anything like that. So I was, quote unquote, fortunate enough to live through the events of Montreal as a 15-year-old WWF superfan. The breed of people who now go to wrestling shows, hardcore fans to chant, this is awesome and you deserve it, they've never had anything like this to get their teeth into. And that's why I think the internet is such a, such a hive mind, for better or worse, to the internet, uh, for wrestling fans these days. I'm not going to go off on another fan rant. I'll do enough of those for us in the, uh, in the DM box for the group, so I'm not going to do that now. But just to say... What's, what's the closest modern-day WWE fans have for this sort of, sort of thing? The kind of people who logged onto message boards after SummerSlam 2016 to try to convince themselves that when Brock opened up Randy Orton's head, that match was a shoot, just because that's something they wanted to sink their teeth into, pretend that they were getting their own version of the screw job in reverse. That's what I mean. The, the business has changed. People who go to pro wrestling shows have changed, but so many of today's fans, they want it all but they're not going to get a Montreal screw job, but I did. <laughs> Lucky me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess the, the, the clearest, the, the closest thing to this I can think of, and God, it, it, I feel old saying it, we're going back uh, six years now, would have been the CM Punk John Cena fight in, what was it, July 2011, 2011, yeah. Yep. Um, you know, that was a bit similar, that was Punk saying, I'm out the door, and you know, that, that was a similar kind of situation as well. Um, that is still for me, like you know, and, and you know, I, I go off on a tangent. Fuck it, we're going long enough. That that for me is 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 one of the the great stories they put together. And what people really forget about that, as, as good as it was, they put that together in two weeks. Everyone talks about great wrestling build. Punk cut the promo. There was a pre-tape rule that was taped the same night that he wasn't on. They'd had a promo exchange six days before the show, and then they did it. That was it, right? And it was it was this biblical, memorable moment. It helps that it was a fantastic match, um, yeah, oh yeah. you know, oh yeah. as well as everything else. But that seems to me like the the the, the one thing that comes close um, and even then that was completely different that was more that was more mystery like the audience it, it, I say I think the, the, the moral of the story is we have access to information a lot more quickly than we ever did and yet I suspect if anything similar happened now we'd be a lot it'd be a lot less clear exactly what happened um, which is a conclusion if not the one and a rather random way to end this show as we <laughs> Creep off at the end of the the, the fourth hour. Um, I think we've done quite well here. As I say, there's there's a lot of the story we haven't touched on. I was thinking about this, like you know, about well, about half an hour ago during the edit. There's some fascinating stuff regarding what could have happened if Brett had still been champion going into December, given that Brett's WCW contract started on December the first. And there was this thought that Brett might go into the pay-per-view in the WWF in that week as a WCW wrestler to drop the title, which is a fascinating little sidebar, if anything else, and what might happen there. And the thought that Bischoff could have called the shots at that point, which could have been very interesting. All the stuff regarding, you know, 
what were they worried about Bret Hart showing up on Nitro? He was never going to show up on Nitro. Um, and yeah, as I say, like to, to me, if I've learnt one thing from this, because this is the this is really the first thing of this story where I didn't actually learn a ton of new information coming out of it, because it's the story that's been told so many times. But I, uh, Eric, I'm stunned that Nightheart, whoever, pitched that finish, and and Bret Hart didn't go. Fuck, that's good. Like, you know, okay, it looks like I can't get my way. But Bret Hart's point, the, if I'm right, if I remember this correctly, the verbiage Bret's always said was, I didn't want to put over Shawn Michaels in Canada. I don't recall him saying I didn't want to lose. I didn't want to put him over. Yeah. Yeah. That was the finish that didn't put him over. That finish puts over the drama between you and Owen Hart. That that does it do the opposite of put Shawn Michaels over, but it makes sure. If anything, it's the kind of finish that Shawn Michaels might have protested. It was say would Shawn would have won the title, but it would look like a complete third wheel. I can't believe that someone didn't see that and went, "That's really good." Um, and that's why uh, I'll give you two, you know, a minute each just to give your final thoughts on any of the above. Eric, that's my big takeaway from from this. Is nothing else. This this is this is a big puzzle, and yet they had the solution. They all did, and I can't work out why they never used it. Well, they never used it because Brett never wanted to put Sean over in Canada, and by Brett's definition of over, that means surrendering the fake prop championship at any point. Um, and so I think that that with I, I think we've done a really really good job of pointing out that there were like logical ways out of this. It didn't have to get here, and Brett would have had to swallow a little bit of his pride. Um, but as an exiting employee from a company, that's what you're supposed to do. Uh, if I leave a law firm, they're not going to give me a big new case to work on. They're going to have me work. They're going to wrap up things and then hit the door as soon as I can. Like I, I wouldn't be upset otherwise. And so I don't see how Brett feels entitled to this big you know, go away ceremony when he's not retiring, he's going to the competition and whose competition, uh, the, the competition whose goal is to, uh, bury or to put out of business, as Eric Bischoff has said, uh, the, the WWF. So I think Brett's idea that he would be different than anybody else who's ever left the WWF to go to WCW or to go to a rival promotion or to not just straight up retire and work backstage was delusional. I think Vince McMahon is an obvious insane narcissist megalomaniac uh, who uh, was never going to do the right thing, but he never should have been expected to do the right thing because that's not in Vince McMahon's nature. So I think we've done a really, really good job pointing out that there are no, there were no real uh, faces in this exchange, to use terminology. There were, everybody was a heel. This was truly the heel versus heel, shades of gray um, uh, uh, event that uh, ultimately precipitated the same on on screen for the next several years. So uh, in a way, um, this was their blueprint for that, but I don't think anybody should come out of this thinking Brett was at fault or Vince was at fault. I think everybody was just an asshole. Roy? I didn't really make the point before, so I'm going to make it very quickly now. Brett was never going to show up on Nitro with the WWFL. I think everything he's done... I really don't. He just had, as much as he hated Vince McMahon at that point, he had too much respect for the business. So when Vince talked in his interview about Brett, 
not respecting the business on that, he was wrong. Brett would never, ever have done that. Bischoff could have made him, could have given him the freedom of Atlanta, and Brett would have said no. So I just want to put that on record. Ultimately, there are two things here we need to bear in mind. One, people should listen to Jim Neidhart more. <laughs> is, it, is it something as I never thought of here? <laughs> no, indeed not. Indeed not. Here, Good try God. this. Yeah. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. And two, what do we learn from this? Oh, Habner was an asshole. Paul Levesque was an asshole. Shawn Michaels was always an asshole. Is an asshole. Was an asshole, yeah. Over this he was. And Vince McMahon was an asshole and a liar. And on the 6th of November 1997, we knew Vince McMahon was an asshole and a liar. On the 7th of November 1997, we knew Vince McMahon was an asshole and a liar. And here we are, 2nd of December 2017, Vince McMahon is an asshole and a liar. At the end of the day, we haven't learned anything. Four hours into this show. Um, yeah, to, to me, like, uh, I wrote a big piece for the, for the site a few weeks ago. I, you know, for once I scrambled to get something out on time rather than the, the two-month delay I seem to be operating on in terms of finding time to publish stuff. It's all written. Um, about, you know, I, did, I, I wrote it before I, I watched the match. I thought, I, I just want to get my thoughts down on paper independently of what it was and you know in some respects it was never going to live up to the hype the whole thing is a bit of a letdown when you've that was the first time I'd seen it ever I think beyond just the the clips and the stuff I'd never gone back and watched the show before I watched the show or even the match um before I watched it a few weeks ago um and that was that was kind of the the, the thing watching it was you know people talk about Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels being a great rivalry but but it, it wasn't like in any kind of sense like it was a great personal feud, but it wasn't a great wrestling rivalry. Yeah, you know, people talk about them being the two best wrestlers of the generation. They never had a great match. Yeah, you know, they had the match at uh, SummerSlam or Survivor Series in '92, which for the time was good. I've watched it back since; it was fine. It's probably um, the best of any of their matches. I think so. Uh, yeah, well, the, the ladder on a curve could be the ladder match as well. Again, another you know another match in '92, but a great feud has to have a few things. It has to draw money, and they never really did. Um, you know, I know the buy rate for this was better than some of the others, but that says more about the the lack of buy rates everywhere else. A reminder that that Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, one of the great wrestling rivalries, drew about two hundred and fifty thousand buyers on pay per view in November nineteen ninety seven. A month later, Hulk Hogan and Sting drew about seven hundred thousand buyers on pay per view. That's a great wrestling rivalry. Yeah, that's you know that's 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 how great wrestling rivalries work. And to me, like, you know, as I say, Bret Hart does take everything too seriously and whatnot, but it's like, ultimately, like, uh, what, what's, what's, more, what's more damaging for Bret Hart? You know, to, why not just think, fuck it, I'm going out the door, I don't like the guy, but I, I, I'm sure Bret Hart respected his ability objectively, forgetting how much his own personal interactions was well I'll just go oh fuck it alright I'm going to put you over let's have the match we should have had let's just have the barn burner we always should have had let's just 
put all of our differences aside, and at the end of it, you know, let's have the match we should have had at WrestleMania 18 months earlier because Pride got in the way and we went with this hour-long stipulation. We blew it. Let's just have a great match. Kick me in the face, and I'll stare up at the lights, and I'll do the time-honored tradition. Would that have really damaged Bret Hart's brand out the door more than any other scenario? Like, I don't know. It's it's uh, the screw jobs a missed opportunity, or the, the 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 Survivor Series main event is a missed opportunity in about fifty different ways, um, and everything feels like a missed opportunity, really. Um, in that sense, uh, and I'll finish like this. You know, everyone loves Bret Hart, right? Everyone seems to love Bret Hart, even though, you know, he was on top in the WWF during their worst period. Then he moves to WCW. The WWF get hot within about six months. And he arrives in WCW and the decline starts almost as soon as he gets there. I fascinating to see how that plays out. But I, I just think it's interesting that to me the if Bret's Hart if Bret Hart is the, the best wrestler of all time, uh, you know, people didn't half see this raw brother without him than they did with him. It's a it's an interesting little cliffhanger to end on. But that's probably what we're gonna get to see going forward and I'm gonna get to test that hypothesis I suppose over the next two to three years. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Um as I say, this has been the, the the word doc that I send out every month with the relevant news in, usually uh, from the newsletters, usually is around fifty to twenty thousand words across four to five four to five newsletters from the Torch, four to five newsletters from the Observer per brand. This was sixty three thousand words. Like there are novels shorter than this. There are books I've read that are shorter than this. Um, so massive thank you to, to Rory and to, to, to Eric. I, I booked this a, a long way out. I watched this show three weeks ago um, just to give myself enough time to get my head around it all. Um, this will be one of you know, you know, our list of figures are a bit weird. We have we have shows from from a few years ago that because they were published in certain places have a lot more listeners than our batting average does now. But this will probably be our most listened to show ever. When, when the dust all settles. Uh, whether we've done a good job of it, I don't know. Um, I don't know whether my incoherent rants and the, the stuff I've chosen to you know, spotlight is is useful. I don't know whether my opinion as someone that's read about this, probably less than, than a lot of people have and, and discussed about it, as is, is the case with all this. I've just, you know, I, I don't think I prepare for this show necessarily tons about more than in any other. You know, beyond having to read through a lot more, I didn't watch the show two or three times. I didn't, you know, go and research a lot of things. I kind of just approached it with everything else. And as I say, hopefully between the three of us, we've come to some kind of informative or interesting opinion. A big thank you, Rory McNamara. Rory, as always, it's been uh, been a pleasure. Thank you, Bob. It's been real. Yes, it's one way of describing it. Rory, where can people find you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter on RawsDM. That's R-O-R-S-D-M. Eric Landstrom, thank you for getting up very early in the morning uh, in, uh, on Pacific time and, uh, and joining us on this, this odyssey. Thank you very much. I wouldn't have missed this show for the world, Bob. <coughs> As my, my throat decides to go, it's, it's a good place to end the show. Uh, Eric, tell people where they can find you on Twitter. Yep, at Modern Day Lawyer. And as always, uh, visit our Patreon if you enjoyed what you heard. Uh, you know, contribute a little bit. 
Yes, patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20 RS. To the live stream this month, it, yeah, it does, it does, birth, does bear mention there are other shows this month. Um, it, I, I tell you what, this, this for a pure pay per view quality standpoint, between this and World War Three, this is possibly the worst month by a stretch in terms of pay per view quality. They're both shit. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and, and perhaps for good reason, because if that had been good, we'd have, we'd have missed it. But yeah, was, me, Dad, and Craig really struggled to find any kind of worth or value of Halloween Havoc. The, uh, the ECW pay-per-view's all right. Um, I, Again, though, it's kind of got lost in the shuffle. Like they were Apparently, Paul Heyman, they, they had an agreement that Heyman could get some airtime on Raw. I think it was on the third week, and Heyman went, you know what, I don't want to be exposed amongst all this... Um, who knows? Um, <clears throat> yes, my, my voice really is going now. Good time to finish. You can find us on Twitter at Wrestling20YRS. You can find uh, all of our back episodes and everything else on the website at wrestling 20 or at Wrestling20YRS.com. That'll do that. I've been Bob Bamba. This has been volume number one of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast for November 1997. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>